Welcome, podcast friends. We have a mega episode for you today. And in the holiday spirit, if you like the show, pass it along. Share it with one of your friends or family members. Over the past few months, we've been releasing the Best Investment Writing Volume 5, featuring some of the most respected money managers and investment researchers all over the world. In case you missed any episodes over the past few months, we wanted to bring you the entire volume as one show. Feel free to listen from start to finish, or check out the show notes for the timestamps of each piece. Enough from me. Let's get to it. Hi, I'm Campbell Harvey, a professor at Duke University. I would like to introduce my paper, Breaking Bad Trends, written with three of my colleagues at Research Affiliates, Ashish, Christian, and Michaeli. I will share the reading with Michaeli. Our paper resides on SSRN and is freely downloaded and includes tables, figures, and many references. Let me motivate the paper. Researchers in academic finance have long known that there is some persistence in returns, so-called time series momentum. However, an important choice needs to be made. How far back in time do you go to measure the trend? One year? One month? One day? Academic researchers usually make a choice and stick to it. Here's the trade-off. If the look back is longer, then the signal might not be very responsive to current information. Sometimes this is called a, a slow signal, and you might miss an important turning point. For example, your trading system uses a one-year look back, and the past 12 months return is negative, which means you're short. However, the past one month's return is positive, potentially signaling a rebound. If that rebound is realized, you miss it because you're using the slower 12-month momentum signal. This is known as a type 2 error or a missed opportunity. In this situation, it would have been better to use a shorter, more responsive look back. The shorter look back is often called a fast signal. However, there are some disadvantages to the shorter look back because it is susceptible to noise. Suppose you see that the past one month return is positive, even though the past 12 months is negative, and you put on a long position. It turns out that this positive return in the past month was not a rebound. It was just noise, and your investment loses value. This is known as a type 1 error, or a false positive. Our paper takes a different approach. We begin by blending slow with fast, in our case, a 12-month signal and a one-month signal, and showed that the blend does better than either the fast or the slow individually. We then tackle what many consider the holy grail of momentum trading. We develop a method to dynamically change the speed of the signal based upon current information. We will show evidence suggesting that the dynamic strategy outperforms traditional methods in our tests on historical data. Let me begin with the introduction. Trend-following investing, that is, time series momentum strategies, can successfully exploit trends in asset prices as demonstrated in numerous research studies over the past 30 years. Such a strategy varies its position 
in an individual asset over time based upon the sign of trailing returns over some fixed look-back window. For example, monthly trading as a function of the most recent 12 months of returns. Going long during sustained periods of uptrend, sometimes known as a bull market, or short during sustained periods of a downtrend, sometimes known as bear markets, tends to be a good bet under such a strategy. However, trend will occasionally break down and reverse direction, that is, at corrections and rebounds. At and after these breaks or turning points in momentum, such trend following tends to place bad bets because trailing returns can reflect an older, inactive trend direction. Faster trend signals, for example, only a few months of trailing returns, rather than solving the problem, increase the tendency of placing bad bets because faster signals often reflect noise instead of a true turn in the trend. The momentum literature, however, has essentially ignored uh, this issue. And little attention is paid to what we refer to as the Achilles heel of trend investing. We study the impact of trend breaks and present three main new findings. First, we document and quantify the impact of turning points on trend performance in general. We define a turning point for an asset as the month in which it's slow, that is longer look back horizon, and fast, the shorter look back horizon, momentum signals differ in their indications to buy or sell. We find a negative relationship between the number of turning points that an asset experiences and its risk-adjusted performance of its 12-month trend-following strategy. This relationship manifests not only across a diverse collection of assets from different asset classes, but also carries over to multi-asset portfolios of trend-following strategies. Although such a relationship might not seem surprising, to at least to some extent, its economic impact can be substantial. For a multi-asset trend-following portfolio normalized to have a 10% annual volatility over the last 30 years, a one standard deviation increase in the average number of breaking points, that is plus 0.45, is associated with a decrease of approximately 9.2 percentage points in the annual portfolio return. Moreover, we show that turning points reflect distinct information not transmitted by return volatility. Not only are turning points and return volatility uncorrelated, but volatility exhibits no significant relationship with risk-adjusted trend-following performance. Second, we find that the number of breaking points can help explain the deterioration of trend-following performance in the more recent years. Trend-following individual assets with monthly trading has performed well across several asset classes over several decades. This performance, however, 
has worsened in the most recent decade. During this recent period, the average number of turning points experienced across assets has increased. Six of the most recent 10 years are in the top one-third over the last 30 years when ranked by highest to lowest average number of turning points. An increase in turning points means a decrease in sustained periods of trend, that is, bull or bear markets, the market phases in which trend following is most effective. Babu and co-authors show that market moves measured as the absolute value of asset annual sharp ratios are contemporaneously positively related to the performance of trend-following strategies, and that the decrease in market moves in recent years can help explain the deterioration of the trend-following performance. Because this relationship is contemporaneous rather than predictive, it is not clear that we can use this relationship to improve trend-following strategies. In contrast, turning points observed differences between shorter and longer look-back horizons can be predictive of subsequent uh, returns and used to improve trend-following strategies. And a reference here is our companion paper written by the same authors called Momentum Turning Points and also available on SSRN. As our third main finding, we present trend-following strategies that react dynamically to asset turning points and improve performance of multi-asset trend-following portfolios, especially in months after turning points, which have become more frequent in recent years. Our analysis leverages and extends our work on momentum turning points, the companion paper that I mentioned, in which we show that the intersection of slow and fast time series momentum signals can provide predictive information about returns on equity indices. This information, in turn, can be used to improve time series momentum strategies. Our approach is not to be confused with moving average crossovers. Levine and Pedersen show that moving average crossovers are essentially equivalent the static blends of time series momentum strategies. Moreover, Hearst and co-authors show that the returns of trend-following strategies such as managed futures funds and CTAs can be explained by static blends of time series momentum. At a high level, our approach follows two basic steps. First, we partition an asset's return history into four observable states, bull, correction, bear, and rebound, by relying on the agreement or disagreement of slow and fast trailing momentum signals. Second, we examine the information content of these states for subsequent return behavior and use this to specify an implementable dynamic trend-following strategy that adjusts the weight it assigns to slow and fast time series momentum signals after observing market breaks or corrections or rebounds. 
our application of this dynamic approach to multi-asset trend-following portfolios illustrates that not only can we help explain weaker performance in recent years, but we can construct a trend-following strategy that can exploit this relationship and recover much of the losses experienced by static window trend-following in the last decade. Hi, my name is Michele Mazzolini, and I'm a partner and a member of the Multi-Asset Strategies team at Research Affiliates. Research Affiliates is a global leader in smart beta and asset location and delivers its investment solutions in partnership with some of the world's leading financial institutions. You can find more about us at researchaffiliates.com. Next, I'm going to read the fourth section of the piece titled Breaking Bad Trends and available on ssrn.com. First section, data and turning points. Subsection, data. We use monthly returns for 55 futures, forward and swap markets across four major asset classes, 12 equity indices, 10 bond markets, 24 commodities, and nine currency pairs. Our sample begins in January 1971 for some assets, and we add each asset when its return data become available through December 2019. Our time series of returns is based on holding the front month contracts, or one month forward or 10 years swap and swapping to a new front contract as its expiration date approaches. See Appendix A for more details. Subsection Time Series Momentum For each of the 55 markets, we construct a binary time series momentum strategy following the methodology described by Gark et al. 2019. Our static 12-month trend strategy uses a fixed look-back window size of 12 months of prior returns and goes long one unit if the asset's trailing 12 months return is positive. Otherwise, it goes short one unit. This simple design is similar to that used by Goyal and Jagadish 2017 and Huang et al. 2019. Note that we do not scale the momentum signal by trailing volatility, as do Moskowitz et al. 2012, and we do not exponentially weight past prices. We call this simple time series momentum strategy static to contrast with our dynamic strategies, which we discuss later. Subsection Turning Points. We define asset market turning points based on the methodology described in Gark et al. 2019. For each of the 55 markets, we construct two binary time series momentum signals, labeled slow and fast, based on longer and shorter look-back windows of prior returns, respectively. For each asset I, its slow and fast momentum signals for month M are the average of its monthly excess returns in preceding months. For example, Slow might be the average of the prior 12 months of returns, while fast might be the average of the prior two months of returns. Typically, slow will be based on 12 months or more, while fast will be three months or fewer to capture the difference between longer and shorter term trends. We say that asset I is at a turning point in month M if the signs of its slow and fast signals disagree. The basic idea is that if the average return over a shorter period is pointing in a different direction than the average return over a longer period, say up versus down, then the market might have encountered a breaking trend, say from downward trend to uptrend. If a trend break is indeed occurred, then slower signals prescribe bad bets, for instance, shorting the markets when an older downward trend when the market is recently trending up. On the other hand, if disagreement reflects noise in fast signals rather than the true trend breaks, then faster signals prescribe bad bets. Note that a turning points month for an asset is observable at the beginning of the month because it is based only on trailing returns. 
Later, we will exploit this property to construct time series momentum strategy with improved performance. For now, we focus on the within-year relationship between annual turning points and trend returns. We define the number of turning points per asset per year as Tp, which is equal to the number of months m in year y, such that the sign of source leaked signals differ from the sign of fast signals. For each asset, Tp measure is an integer between 0 and 12, which counts the number of months within year y that were turning points months for asset i. Second section, turning points and static trend. In Exhibit 1, we plot the distribution of annual Sharpe ratio of static 12-month trend-following strategies against the number of asset turning points in the year for all assets, each calendar year, over the last 30 years. For each asset in each calendar year, we calculate the number of turning points as the frequency of months within the year for which the signs of its trailing 12-month and 1-month returns differ. Static 12-month trend goes long one unit if the asset's trailing 12-month return is positive, otherwise it goes short one unit. We calculate an asset's trend-following Sharpe ratio each year as the annual excess returns of trend-following divided by the annualized realized monthly volatility of trend-following. There are 1,561 asset year observations in total. Each box plot gives a vertical representation of the distribution of observations that have the given number of turning points. The horizontal lines of each box plot indicate the quartile of the distribution with the mean indicated by X. The height of the box represents the interquantile range, or IQR. The whiskers extend up and down from the box to the most extreme data points that are within 1.5 times the IQR above or below the box. We consider values beyond the whiskers as outliers represented by dots. Exhibit 1 shows a negative relationship between the frequency of turning points and trend-following performance across assets. As the number of turning points per year increases, the distribution of rescale performance of trend following during the year shifts downward. The exhibit also shows how costly turning points can be for trend following. For assets with six or more turning points within a year, typical returns to static trend following are negative. For assets with eight or more turning points within a year, the vast majority of returns to static trend following are negative with annualized Sharpe ratio below minus one on average across assets. The frequency of turning points is not a proxy for return volatility. First, our measure of trend-following performance is on a risk-adjusted basis. We measure the trend-following performance of each asset in Exhibit 1 by its Sharpe ratio, which scales its annual returns by its annual volatility. This adjustment puts different assets on a comparable risk basis. Second, the negative relationship evident in Exhibit 1 vanishes if we replace the number of turning points by bins of assets' volatilities. See Exhibit B1 in Appendix B. Third, the number of turning points per asset per year is approximately uncorrelated with return volatility, only 0.02 correlation. High or low volatility can appear during periods of sustained uptrend or downtrend, as well as at and after turning points. The negative relationship between turning points frequency and trend-following performance across the distribution of individual assets carries over to multi-asset trend-following portfolios. In Exhibit 2, we plot the annual returns of a multi-asset portfolio of static 12-month trend-following strategy as a function of the average number of turning points for those assets in the year. Each year Y, we compute the weighted average number of turning points across all assets, TP, by allocating equal weight to each asset's value within its asset class and equal weight to each asset class across the four asset classes. For example, we assign 1 over 96 weight to each of the 24 commodities, 
1 over 24 to each commodities and 1 over 4 to commodities overall. Similarly, we construct a multi-asset static trend portfolio return as the equally weighted average of individual asset static trend following returns. Similar to Exhibit 1, Exhibit 2 shows a distinct negative relationship between the number of turning points and the risk-adjusted performance of trend-following strategies. The downward sloping fitted trend line, with an R-square of 0.72 and a slope of minus 0.21, quantifies the negative relationship. A one-standard deviation increase in the weighted average number of assets turning points translates to approximately 9.2 percentage points lower annual returns, which is economically significant relative to the 10% annualized volatility level over the sample. Exhibit 3 shows the distribution of the number of turning points per year per asset across all 55 assets over the last 30 years split into two in the first 20 years and the last 10 years. The last 10 years exhibit an upward shift in the number of turning points relative to the first 20 years. This phenomenon is also present in Exhibit 2. Six of the most recent 10 years, highlighted with boldface text, have a weighted average number of turning points that rank in the top 10 years of the 30-year period. Given the negative relationship between the number of turning points and trend-following performance highlighted in Exhibit 1 and 2, this shift can help explain the deterioration of trend-following performance in the recent decade. Third section, Turning Points and Dynamic Trend. In this section, we adapt the dynamic trend-following methodology of Gark et al. 2019 to each asset in our universe of 55 assets. Based on the signs of the slow and fast momentum signals in equation 1 and 2, we define four market states for each asset in each month as follows. The market states equal bull if slow and fast signals are greater than zero. The market states equal correction if the slow signal is greater than zero and the fast signal is strictly smaller than zero. The market states equal bear if both signals, fast and slow, are strictly smaller than zero. The market state equal rebound if the slow signal is smaller than zero and the fast signal is greater than zero. Note that the union of correction and rebound phases equals turning point phases of our earlier definition. So the sign of the slow signal is different from the sign of the fast signal if and only if a market state is either a correction or a rebound. We also define the two returns to the slow and fast momentum strategies for each asset in each month as follows. So the returns of the slow strategy equal plus the market returns if the slow signal is positive, is equal to the minus the market returns if the slow signal is negative. Similarly, the returns of the slow strategy equals plus the market returns if the slow signal is positive and equal minus the market returns if the fast signal is negative. Recall from equations 1 and 2 that each signal is determined with information from months prior to month M, so that the market states are observable at the beginning of the month and apply to a position until the next month. The dynamic trend strategy return for each asset in each month blends the fast and slow returns in a way that can vary after observing different market states as follows. The dynamic trend returns equal the market returns if the market states coincide with a bull. The dynamic trend returns equal minus the market returns if the market states equals a bear. The dynamic trend returns equal a weighted average of fast and slow strategy when we observe correction and rebounds. Each mixing parameter of the weighted averages is a mixing weight placed on the fast strategy after observing either a correction or rebound, respectively. Behavior after bull and bear states mimics the static strategy. 
For our historical simulation, we estimate these mixing parameters from historical returns in months following correction and rebounds prior to portfolio formation. Mixing parameters are estimated ex-ante and do not use data from the future. For each asset without sufficient history, prior to the beginning of the valuation period in January 1990, our sample is reduced by up to 48 months of return history needed to warm up the mixing parameters estimates. Implementation details are given in the Appendix C. The mixing parameters tilt each asset strategy away from or towards its fastened trend strategy in an intuitive way. Intuitively, if historical returns tend to be positive after corrections, when the slow strategy goes long and the fast strategy goes short, then the mixing parameter is smaller than a half, reflecting a tilt away from fast. In contrast, if historical returns tend to be positive after rebounds, when the slow strategy goes short and the fast strategy goes long, then the mixing parameter is greater than a half, reflecting a tilt toward fast. If historical returns are negative after such states, then the direction of the tilt reverses. If the estimate is noisy, then there is shrinkage to the no information position of one half. This strategy is implementable as a trading strategy in real time, not just a backtest. We form the multi-asset dynamic trend portfolio as follows. Using the equations described above for each asset, at the beginning of each month, we blend the asset's low and fast trend strategies according to the observed market phases, which depends only on returns from prior months. We form the multi-asset dynamic trend portfolio return as a weighted average of individual asset dynamic trend returns. Similar to our static portfolio, dynamic portfolio asset weights are equally weighted within each asset class, and asset class weights are equal across the four asset classes. Our framework supports dynamic blending of two time series momentum strategy having slow and fast momentum signals. We illustrate the potential of dynamic trend strategies to handle turning points with a simple example, which uses a common choice of slow and fast horizon across all assets. The related work by Babu et al. 2020 studies the connection between market moves, absolute value of asset annual sharp ratios, and the performance of trend following strategy forms the average of one, three, 12 month static time series momentum strategy on each asset. We use the 2 and 12 look-back horizon for fast and slow signals, respectively, in our empirical analysis. The faster 2-month signal approximates the information in the short look-back windows of 1 and 3 months, and we blend this 2-month strategy dynamically with the slower 12-month signal-based strategy. In Exhibit 4, we compare the annualized monthly returns of this multi-asset dynamic trend portfolio alongside the 12-month static multi-asset trend portfolio, with each portfolio normalized to have 10% volatility over the status sample periods. Exhibit 4 also shows the decomposition of these returns into returns following bulls or bears and returns following turning points, correction or rebounds. Multi-asset static trend generates approximately 7.5% annualized average return over the 30-year evaluation period yet only 1.8% in the most recent decade. Moreover, the vast majority of the returns to the multi-asset static trend portfolio in either evaluation period can be attributed to month after bull or bear phases. In contrast, the multi-asset dynamic trend portfolio not only generates returns after bull or bear phases in similar magnitude to the static strategy, but also generates returns in month after turning points. Average returns of both static and dynamic methods have decreased in recent years. However, dynamic trends generate a 4.3% average returns in the recent decade, which is more than double the 1.8% generated by static trend. Moreover, the bulk of those gains are from returns harvested after turning points.
We compare the performance of our dynamic trend strategy with the performance of various static trend strategies and with blends of static trend strategies in Exhibit 5. We draw similar inferences from this alternative static specification. Fastest static trend strategies or static blends of static trend strategies struggle to generate returns after turning points, particularly in the most recent decade. Fourth section, conclusion. Trend-following strategies at the monthly trading frequency have experienced notably weaker performance over the most recent decade compared with the prior two decades. The frequency of turning points in the trajectory of asset prices trends, as measured by disagreement between slow and fast trailing momentum signals, can help explain this phenomenon. Recent years have exhibited more turning points across assets and asset classes and, therefore, fewer periods of sustained uptrend or downward trend across all assets, those phases in which trend following is most effective. We show that observed market correction and rebounds carry predictive information about subsequent returns and we utilize such breaks to enhance the performance of trend following strategies. We illustrate this fact with a multi-asset dynamic trend portfolio that focuses on addressing performance after turning points, while following a simple static trend strategy after bull and bear markets of each asset. We demonstrate that dynamic trend following can harvest returns after turning points returns that might have been lost under standard trend following. This article is titled Value Investing, an Examination of the 1,000 Largest Firms by Jack Vogel of Alpha Architect. Among stock investors, a common strategy and belief held is value investing, which is buying stocks that are relatively cheap on price or fundamental ratios. The idea behind why value investing works is that value stocks are either one, riskier, and or two, have been mispriced by the market. So in theory, these elements of risk or mispricing lead to expected above market returns. However, this strategy has failed over the past couple of years, causing many to doubt or question what is going on with the strategy. Given the recent underperformance, there have been a lot of articles written about the so-called death of value investing. Some of the articles that examine this question, is value dead, have examined the performance of two well-known indices, the Russell 1000 Value Index and the Russell 1000 Growth Index. These are widely referenced in the industry, are market cap weighted, and have returns going back to 1979. Since value is supposed to be growth over the long run, how have these indices performed? The performance from January 1st of 1979 through July 31st of 2020 of the Russell 1000 Index, the Russell 1000 Growth Index, and the Russell 1000 Value Index highlight that value has actually lost to growth over this entire time sample. So as a value investor, that is a disappointment to say the least. And digging deeper, let's look at the performance over the past 10 years. The market, or the Russell 1000, returned 13.85%, whereas Russell 1000 value returned 10%, and Russell 1000 growth returned 17%, an almost 7% differential between value and growth over the 10 years ending July 31st of 2020. And when we look at that on a compounded growth chart, the returns are very painful. Examining the past one, three, and five years, we see that value has lost to growth by 35% over the past one year through July 31st, 2020, by almost 18% compounded for three years, and by almost 11% compounded for the previous five years. And so in a lot of people's minds, value investing is dead. But let's take a step back for a moment. What exactly is value investing? 
It is simply trying to buy stocks that are cheaper when compared to other stocks. But now, what does it mean for a stock to be cheap? Let's look at a simple example. Pretend that there are only four stocks in the universe in which we can invest. We are going to simply look at the firm's earnings each year and compare that to the price one would pay if they bought the entire company, such as like the firm's market cap. This is called the simple price to earnings or PE ratio. So in my four stock example, I have four stocks that all have a market cap of 1000. However, stock one has earnings of 100, stock two has earnings of 50, stock three has an earnings of $25, and stock four has an earnings of 10. So the price to earnings ratio on stock one, which has an earnings of 100 and a market cap of 1,000 is 10. Whereas stock four, which has earnings of $10 and market cap of 1,000 has a PE or price to earnings ratio of 100. So in my four stock example, stocks one and two traded a lower multiple of earnings relative to three and four. So a systematic value investor who only uses PE multiple would prefer stocks one and two compared to three and four. As a shopping example, stocks one and two are on sale compared to stocks three and four because all four firms have the exact same market cap, but firms one and two make more money. So they are value or cheap stocks. Of course, my example above is very simplified and we are only looking at one point in time number, past year's earnings. It may be the case that firms three and four are growing at a faster rate, and we can create more advanced models to try to figure out the best investment. However, if that were the case, an expert can create better models, then active managers wouldn't lose to the market around 80% of the time over five years, according to Spivas studies. So academics have studied how value stocks perform relative to growth stocks. In general, they use the book value of assets divided by the market cap of the firm, as this was the measure used in the seminal 1992 and 1993 Fama and French papers. And what they found is that value stocks outperform growth stocks. So in the original paper, Fama and French highlight that this is most likely compensation on for taking on some additional risk, really to underscore the fact that this is not a free lunch. Of course, one can use other measures to identify cheap stocks, such as price to earnings or book to market. We examined different methods in a paper that Wes and I wrote a couple years ago, looking at also free cash flow and EBIT to TEV. However, the big picture takeaway is the following. Value beat growth, no matter which metric one used. So back to our Russell 1000 example, why then does the Russell 1000 indices have growth beating value? over a pretty substantial time period, 1979 to July of 2020. So part of this is the construction process that they use. Here are the three variables that are used to create the Russell 1000 growth and value indices. The first is book to market. The second is medium term forecast earnings growth rate based on the IBIS two year forecast, IBIS or analysts. The third measure is sales per share growth rate based on five-year historical sales. Now, without making any judgments as to whether or not this is a good or bad process, what one should note is that this methodology is definitely different than the simple example above, which was simply splitting the firms on the PE multiple, or like in the original value papers, book to market, or our preferred measure, EBIT to TV. So what would happen if we went back and tested splitting the 1,000 largest firms on a simple PE multiple over the same time period? To answer that, I dug into the data. 
I annually rebalance the portfolios on June 30th of each year using the firm's market cap to identify the 1,000 largest firms. Firms' earnings values were brought in as of 6.30 each year using annual data while only examining data as of 3.31 each year. This is done to eliminate the so-called look-ahead bias that can occur when looking at back tests. So all of the portfolios shown in the main text are market cap weighting or evaluating in the academic parlance. So the first thing I did was ensure that my universe of the 1,000 largest firms reasonably matched the returns to the Russell 1000 index. So over the January 1st, 1979 to December 31st, 2019 time period, I had a correlation of 9.9983 and the returns were 11.98 for the Russell 1000 index and 11.87 for my universe. So what this highlights is that the data is pretty good based seeing a very high correlation amongst the two. So next, I then split the universe on one simple variable on June 30th each year, price to earnings multiple. So firms trading at higher multiples of earnings were deemed to be growth and firms trading at lower multiples of earnings were deemed to be value. The results that I find are listed below. The cheap half, so basically the 500 cheapest stocks, again, this is market cap or valuated portfolios, but the cheap half of firms returned 13.16%, whereas the expensive half returned 10.39%. Again, a spread of almost 3% over a 40-year period between value and growth. And to drive home an important point here, given our universe is a thousand stocks, I really am only doing once a year a very simplistic split to 500 cheap firms and 500 expensive firms using the PE multiple and then market cap weighting the portfolio. This is very simple. Nothing else is done. Those 500 stocks are then followed for in a portfolio for one year to generate the returns to the value portfolio and the growth portfolio. And looking at a compounded growth over 42-year period, we highlight and see that $100 invested into value would have generated about $16,000 at the end, whereas $100 invested into growth would have generated about $6,000 at the end. So this is what 3% differential compounded over 42 years occurs. And thus, the difference is not negligible. Since I already have the data, I decided to additionally split the universe into tercials, which is three groups, quintiles, which is five groups, and deciles, which are 10 groups. And what we see is over the 1979 to 2019 period, as we go further out from tercile to quintile to decile, the value growth differential widens. So when we split the universe in half, we had about a 3% spread. When we split the universe into third, we have about a 4% spread. When we split the universe into five, we have about a 5% spread. And when we split the universe into 10, we have almost a 6% spread. So in general, the more one tilted towards value factor, moving from tercials to quintiles to deciles, the larger the spread between value and growth. However, it needs to be highlighted that this performance is definitely not a free lunch. This is not guaranteed and it is not a free lunch. As I showed at the beginning of this article, the past 10 years, and especially the past five years, have not been very kind to a value investor. 
Thus, a true value investor needs to be aware of this and understand the risk. So what about recent performance? Now, while the data I had in my backtest went through December 31st, 2019, what happened in 2020 for a value investor using these simple price-to-earning splits? For context, this article was written and the data ended as of July 31st of 2020. So to study this, I updated the data through the end of 731 using FactSet, and I built portfolios as of 1231, 2019. What one sees is that value definitely continued its underperformance this year. I show the performance in using these PE splits of quintiles and tercels using market cap weights. So using quintiles as an example, from January 1st of 2020 through July 31st of 2020, we see a definitive edge for growth investing as the pandemic occurred in early 2020. The most expensive quintile returned about 25%, whereas value stocks returned negative 25%. This is an almost 50% return differential between value and growth in the opposite direction, where growth stocks outperform value stocks over a seven-month period by 50%. Thus, value investing can massively underperform growth investing at times. So now what happens if we append the 2020 data over the long run? Does value still be growth using this very simplistic PE sample? So I now update the sample from January 1st of 1979 through July 31st of 2020. Once again, using my simplistic split on the PE multiple one time a year. What we find is that value still outperforms growth by over 2% over this 42 plus year period. So where does this all leave us? Well, the longer I've been in the investment industry, I've noticed that people tend to fall in different camps or religions when it comes to investing. A couple of them are the following. First, Vanguard investors who look for market cap weighted portfolios and low fees. Second, dividend investors. These investors like to invest in firms paying higher dividends than other firms. Third, value investors. They prefer to buy cheap stocks, look for deals. Fourth are growth investors. These are always looking for the new innovative stocks in the marketplace. Now, maybe the best outcome for investors and advisors is to match themselves up and their clients with portfolios they feel comfortable with and can trust the process. This simple study highlights, first, one simple approach to value investing, and two, its performance in U.S. stocks over a 40-year period. Other studies have also shown that over long time cycles and across multiple asset classes, and using different measures, value investing has beaten growth investing. However, it definitely will not work all the time. And this is actually probably required for it to persist in the future. To conclude, value investing is a simple concept, trying to buy stocks trading at lower multiples of earnings or fundamentals. In the past, value beat growth investing, but it will not work all the time. Thank you for listening. Duncan's way outside with Wallace on him, and it picks it up off the glass. We're looking for that early now. What you want is every time that you get a switch or you get in a help situation, get the ball to Duncan early and let him operate in the clock. In the 2005 NBA Finals, the San Antonio Spurs defeated the Detroit Pistons four games to three. Spurs center Tim Duncan was named Finals MVP averaging over 20 points and 14 rebounds per game. 
In the prime of his career, Tim Duncan was a prototypical back-to-the-basket big man, scoring over smaller defenders, out-rebounding them, or dishing the ball out to open teammates as defenses collapsed on him. Basketball is a possession efficiency game. Statistically speaking, a winning basketball team scores more points on average per possession than its opponent. For decades, the route to per-possession efficiency was having a dominant center. Prior to the 2005 NBA Finals, 75% of champions since the dawn of the league were led by a dominant big man holding the court down near the basket. The route to a championship was clear. Find a dominant center who played well with his back to the basket and controls rebounds, and your possession efficiency rises to a championship level. However, since 2005, not a single NBA Finals MVP has been a traditional center. League MVPs have been smaller players located further from the basket, like Steph Curry, Steve Nash, Kobe Bryant, James Harden, and LeBron James. LeBron is not exactly small, but he doesn't play with his back to the basket very much. So what happened? The answer is a subtle but significant rule change. If you guessed the institution of the three-point line, you're wrong. That happened in 1979. The change was a modification of a defensive rule called hand checking. Hand checking is where a defensive player puts his hand on an offensive player's body, whether or not they have the ball. This allowed larger and stronger players to channel smaller players and obstruct their movement around the court. The rule was changed in 2004 to disallow this tactic. The result was not immediate, but turned into a revolution. Smaller and more athletic players now much freer in their movement around the court, could exploit their athleticism and skill. Scoring exploded, with average points per game up 19 points compared to before the hand-checking rule was instituted. NBA basketball is now a perimeter game. The key to success is a squadron of perimeter shooters that can spread the floor, good passing around the perimeter, and long and quick defensive wings that can guard these guys. As for the traditional center, well, they still exist, but are far from the focus of the game. My name is Brian Barish. I am president and chief investment officer of Cambiar Investors. Our company has been in business for almost half a century. We manage equity strategies in the U.S., internationally and globally, up and down the capitalization spectrum. All our strategies employ a value philosophy to uncover opportunity, manage risk, and defend against the inevitable unknowns. This means we have a serious issue on our hands. It's certainly just a coincidence, but the success of value investing ebbed right around the same time as the era of NBA big men in 2006. Up to the year 2006, value investing superiority over growth and other styles was unchallenged, kind of like the embedded wisdom of building a basketball team around a dominant big man. The philosophy behind value investing is not dissimilar to that of building a basketball team around a dominant center. Value investors believe that the price paid for a stock is a major determinant in its potential upside, and that by buying stocks very cheaply in comparison to their intrinsic value, 
value investors and then a margin of safety relative to the price paid. Low downside, high upside. It's the investment equivalent of per possession efficiency. For most of the 20th century and even the first part of the 21st, value investing enjoyed a gold-plated philosophical and quantitative edge over other approaches to stock picking. Value worked better. But starting a bit before the 2008 financial crisis, value started not working so well. Through the crash of the financial system and the economy, value stocks underperformed noticeably. And since the stock market low in 2009, value indexes have continued to lag. In fact, it's been 14 years of steadily weaker returns than comparable growth indices. With the world economy thrown into deep recession and uncertainty due to the COVID-19 virus and great lockdown, value stocks entered the 100th percentile of valuation relative to growth stocks. They have simply never been cheaper, relatively speaking. The long, dark winter of value means that statistics like this don't scream of opportunity anymore to the financial press. They bring questions and sarcasm. Last fall, Forbes magazine ran a piece titled, Has Value Investing Stopped Working? While institutional investor ran a piece around the same time with a catchy title, Why Value Investing Sucks. In 2020, the world's most renowned value investor, Warren Buffett, has been lampooned for inaction in the depths of the coronavirus sell-off and deep losses on major portfolio positions. It's getting tough out there. I want to share with you my journey into this issue. It hasn't been easy, but after looking at a lot of the different forms of data from macroeconomic to accounting to specific industry structures and evolution, there are emerging and investable conclusions. I'm going to assume that a lot of people listening to this are generally familiar with the concepts behind value investing. In case you are not, let's do a 100-second crash course. Value investing means buying stocks at a significant discount to their intrinsic value. By doing this, value investors embed high potential upside to the purchase and a margin of safety to the downside. There is another big related concept called the fade rate. Eventually, companies that earn high profit margins attract competition, so these returns tend to fade over time to a long-term corporate average. In order to ensure margin of safety, it's important to avoid accidentally overestimating long-term profits. Value investors calculate intrinsic value with a DCF, or discounted cash flow analysis. To do this, you need to estimate future cash flows and the terminal value for the business and discount these back to the present to account for time value and risk. There is one huge problem with DCFs, which is that the variables are all forecasts about the future, and as Yogi Berra once famously said, forecasting is hard, especially about the future. It's important to have some humility about the fade rate concept also. Like a star athlete, eventually they become more average, but it's hard to predict exactly when this will happen. Because of these subjective factors, value investors over the years developed a variety of approximation methods to speed up the calculation and reduce subjectivity. In 1992, one particular speedy and practical technique was published by professors Eugene Fama and Ken French called the value factor. They concluded that over time, companies trading at below average price to book multiples outperform those trading at higher multiples, arguably because the higher multiple stocks embed more inflated profitability assumptions. Buying the less demandingly valued cohorts of the stock market steered investors away from this behavioral finance mistake.
From the dawn of modern record keeping in 1960 until the year 2006, the Fama French low book to market value factor enjoyed a nearly 15 fold cumulative excess return that managed to encapsulate the vagaries of the DCF model and the corporate fade rate concept in one tidy package, one financial variable to rule them all. Their work was widely embraced and soon after a low price to book multiple became the primary factor by which value stock indexes were constructed. This means that trillions and trillions of dollars of indexed investments are linked every day to this one variable. Ironically, this all happened in the early 1990s, just a couple of years before the birth of the modern internet and the PC revolution. This is a slide that I first saw a couple of years ago. It really shook my foundations as an investor. Let me explain what you are looking at. It is a chart produced by a quantitative finance group at Sanford Bernstein. What it shows are the future ROEs of companies that are in the highest quintile of the overall stock market one, two, three, four, and five years after they first appear in the top quintile. As you can see, back in the 1990s, about half of the top quintile companies were still in the top quintile three years later, while after four or five years, 60 to 70% of top quintile companies were no longer in the top quintile. In other words, the fade concept was working very reliably. Now, squint a little at this chart and you will see that sometime in the mid-2000s, the slope of these lines starts to turn up. By the year 2015, more than 60% of top quintile companies are still earning superior returns on equity four or five years later. In other words, the best companies' returns are not fading at anywhere near the rate that they used to in the 1990s or the early 2000s. Your typical value investor has a behavioral bias to look selectively at laggards and not overestimate the sustainability of high profit margins. But Given the data that makes up these charts, that bias is wrong. Apparently, with increasing force in the 21st century, the top companies in the stock market are able to continue compounding returns on capital at above normal rates, and competition does not seem to be making much of an impact. The whole concept of fading the extremes and therefore book value as the most important variable is thrown on its head. Moreover, a behavioral bias towards looking at cheap companies that have lagged the market by varying degrees and embed lower return expectations is counterproductive. So why is this happening and why did it start happening in the mid-2000s? Was there a rule change like in basketball that initiated a variety of unforeseeable consequences? What is the virus plaguing value? Why are low book value multiple stocks continuing to lag? Why are corporate returns not fading? Why is contrarianism not working? Why are value stocks in the 100th percentile of valuation versus growth? The virus plaguing value isn't really a virus. It's that we are advancing out of the industrial age and into the digital age, and measuring value in the digital age is different. Low book to market worked in the industrial age and was still the relevant paradigm to describe most businesses in the 1990s. In the digital age, we are gradually replacing the physical with the digital, from communications to consumption to industrial design to finance. In our view, this has specifically been catalyzed by broad penetration of connected and highly functional digital devices like smartphones. 
This reached critical mass not in the year 2000, but a few years after, like around 2006. This means consumers and businesses have an astonishing amount of information available to them about prices, products, and availability. Products are designed digitally and supply chains are tightly tuned in demand based on precise information transmitted digitally. Tight digital linkages have enabled successful companies to de-verticalize themselves, focusing on product design and marketing while leaving the more capital and labor-intensive manufacturing of key components and final assembly to others. Customer engagement is not limited to store hours or even normal times of the day, and clever entrepreneurs are continuing to find ways to create digital interfaces for everyday necessities and services. As we have entered the digital age and gone deeper into it, with more and more advanced digital devices, physical assets have become less important to business success. It's software and systems that are needed to make physical devices work and connect. And increasingly, digital devices can be substituted for physical assets. The general store and the shopping mall is increasingly a screen. In 2020, we discovered that much of the office experience can be a screen also. The electrons on screen as you are watching this podcast don't have any replacement cost associated with them. This general tendency towards digitization erodes the physical replacement cost definition of value considerably. Hopefully, this all makes intuitive sense. Because when you're used to looking through an industrial age financial lens, some of the key sources of value in the digital age are not so obvious. In the industrial age, decades worth of experience has shown that physical scale, distinctive brands, strong product distribution, and attractive locations lead to competitive advantages and more valuable stocks. These same concepts hold true in the digital age, but they manifest in different ways. We have identified three key business concepts that superior digital age businesses tend to possess and which lead to durable profitability and customer relationships. These are intangible assets, such as brands, patents, and other forms of know-how. Interoperability, which is also known as the lock-in effect, and liquidity-driven marketplaces. None of these concepts are unique to the digital age, but they show up much more often and in more powerfully than in the past. The most successful companies in the digital age harness these forces to create monopoly-like profits and market positions, leading to very low fade rates. The liquidity-driven marketplace concept is as old as the stock market itself. Buyers could expect to find sellers, and sellers could expect to find buyers in the same location, such as the New York Stock Exchange for stocks, or the Chicago Mercantile Exchange for commodities and financial contracts. For the buying and selling of ordinary goods, location and distribution mattered more. Now, that's no longer very true. We are no longer bounded by location, the time of the day, or other physical constraints. Shopping, searching, socializing, and communication have become standardized on the platforms where there is the greatest liquidity between buyers and sellers. The liquidity-driven effect explains the success and scalability of entertainment services such as Netflix or transportation platforms such as Uber. The important point from a competitive analysis perspective is that once liquidity becomes established at a certain venue, it becomes very difficult to compete with. We will find out in the course of time just how durable some of these digital liquidity-driven marketplaces are. Interoperability is another old-school business concept that has taken on new scale in the digital age. The old razors and blades approach to pushing customer loyalty 
is a form of interoperability. With the rise of operating system software, business software, digital platforms such as smartphone apps, and connected ecosystems of apps, the interoperability concept scales far beyond the bathroom. With interoperability a near constant presence in our digitally driven lives, monopoly rents have accrued to the companies that can capitalize on this reality. Intangible assets such as brands, patents, and technological know-how are well understood to be of greater importance in the modern world. The average S&P 500 company spends twice as much R&D as a percentage of sales as 25 years ago. They would not do this if there were not compelling business reasons to spend so much more money. Ironically, the accounting profession remains rather stuck in the past and fails to recognize cumulative R&D as a balance sheet asset. This accounting distortion just further magnifies the challenge of using book value as the most critical evidence of an attractive stock market price. The world of quantitative and passive investing would love it if there was a new and improved single variable that would indicate the presence or absence of value, but I'm afraid our work shows this just isn't realistic. We can look for the liquidity-driven marketplace effect, for interoperability, and for huge moats of cumulative R&D as likely indicators that digital age value drivers are present. It's much harder to stay where, on a financial statement, these would reside. Let's go back to my big question. Why has the fade rate for business returns on capital changed, and why has that happened so decisively since 2006? You probably know the answer if you've made it this far. The importance of intangibles, the barriers to competition that these create, the amount of interoperability that is a feature of the digital age, and the liquidity-driven effect. When successful businesses are able to capture these, their success compounds and competitive pressure fades. The ubiquitous nature of digital and connected devices opened this floodgate wide. The value investor's behavioral bias to fade outsize success and identify laggards is much less likely to be productive. And the low book to market value factor, that looks hopelessly antiquated as a predictor of future returns, as antiquated as shopping malls and newspapers and NBA big men. Hello, my name is Andrew Patterson, and I'm a senior economist at Vanguard within our investment strategy group. I lead the team charged with developing and communicating our firm's economic and market outlook, and I'm here today to share some of our team's research. Founded in 1975, Vanguard is one of the world's most respected investment management companies. Our firm offers investments, advice, and retirement services and insights to individuals, institutions, and financial professionals. Based in Malvern, Pennsylvania, Vanguard has offices worldwide and manages more than $8 trillion on behalf of 30 million clients. Vanguard operates under a unique investor-owned structure and adheres to our simple purpose. That is, to take a stand for all investors, to treat them fairly, and to give them the best chance for investment success. To learn more about us, you can find us at about.vanguard.com. Now, the piece I'm going to read, The Idea Multiplier and Acceleration to Innovation is Coming, is part of Vanguard's Megatrend series. Megatrends have accompanied humankind throughout history. From the Neolithic Revolution to the Information Age, Innovation has been the catalyst for profound socioeconomic, cultural, and political transformation. The term megatrends was popularized by author John Nasbitt, who was interested in the transformative forces that have major impact on both businesses and societies, and thus the potential to change all areas of our personal and professional lives. Vanguard's Megatrend series is a research effort that investigates fundamental shifts in the global economic landscape that are likely to affect the financial services industry and broader society. A megatrend may bring market growth or destroy it, 
It may increase competition or add barriers to entry, and it creates threats or it may uncover opportunities. Exploring the long-term nature of massive shifts in technology, demographics, and globalization can help us better understand how such forces may shape future markets, individuals, and the investing landscape in the years ahead. Introduction. Productivity. A paradox for the ages. One of the greatest economic paradoxes of the last 40 years has been the slowdown in productivity growth coinciding with the advancement of technological innovation, particularly that in the field of computing. This is sometimes referred to as the solo computer paradox after Robert Solow's 1987 remark that you can see the computer age everywhere but in the productivity statistics. Fast forward 30 years, and you can now apply Solow's remarks to robotics, AI, machine learning, and more. Analysts attribute the current slowdown to causes ranging from an aging population to mismeasurement. Figure one, though, shows clearly that technological advancement, represented by inventions such as the telephone, light bulb, and computer, does not result in immediate benefits to productivity growth. It takes time for such changes to be adopted en masse and diffused through an economy. In fact, in each of those three instances, it took more than 50 years for 50% of U.S. households to have a telephone, electricity, or access to a home computer. We will later discuss this adoption rate and its implications for our work. Over the past decade, economic productivity has grown at a stubborn rate of 0.4% annually, a drop from the 1990s rate of 0.8%, and a collapse from the 2% surge that propelled U.S. living standards in the mid-20th century. Robotics and artificial intelligence seem to allow us to do more with less, but this is not reflected in productivity measures. Researchers offer a number of explanations for this paradox. Some suggest that today's innovations, such as the smartphone and social media platforms, pale in comparison to the Industrial Revolution and the electrification of homes and production facilities. Others attribute the decline to demographic trends or mismeasurement, for example, a service economy is typically viewed as being harder to measure than a manufacturing economy. In this paper, we identify a phenomenon that helps explain the post-2000 decline in productivity growth, namely, a stagnation in the expansion of new ideas as measured by a proprietary indicator, the idea multiplier. This metric is based on the number of times influential research published in academic and industry journals is acknowledged and built upon in subsequent articles. Our analysis suggests that a recent surge in the idea multiplier portends a productivity increase to 1.2% annually over the next five years, double the rate of the past two decades. Such growth should translate into higher wages, higher profits, and higher living standards. Productivity growth. Moon landings are great, but the 1970s ushered in the information age. Like the Renaissance and Industrial Revolution before it, this was a turning point in the world's evolution. Work and life would never be the same as personal computers replaced typewriters at home and the office, and eventually, smartphones and tablets gave users more computing power in the palm of their hand than NASA had during the moon landing. Yet these amazing technological breakthroughs, many of which occurred actually in the past 20 years, coincided with a period of low productivity growth. How was this possible when calculations that previously would have taken hours and cost small fortunes in hardware can now be completed in seconds? Research has shown that paradigm-shifting advancements in technology or business practices take time to pass through to output and productivity measures. Perhaps it's still too early to measure the true impact of the information age, but today's slow productivity growth remains puzzling and a source of robust academic debate. Many explanations for the slowdown in productivity growth have been presented with sound theoretical and analytical support. In figure two, we outline some of the most well-known hypotheses and supporting research, including dearth of new ideas, demographics, shift to services, 
lack of diffusion of new ideas and technology, and measurement issues. In all likelihood, each of these causes has played a role to some degree. However, we respectfully disagree with those who imply that new ideas are increasingly hard to come by and don't have the potential to drive future productivity growth. In fact, our work shows that the quality, impact, and sharing of ideas have actually been rising in recent years. We should all be concerned with productivity growth. Productivity is the ratio of some measure of output attributed to some measure of resource allocation, be it people, technology, or time. Now, why does productivity matter? Well, the more productive a firm or industry is, the higher its potential profit margin should be. Differences in productivity and associated economic growth contribute significantly to differences in country standard of living. More productive countries are able to use their aggregate inputs, such as physical and human capital, more efficiently. This facilitates faster income growth for businesses and for households. We can see this in the relationship between productivity and wages, as we outlined in Figure 3. The more productive a person is, the faster that person should expect his or her wages to grow. The link between productivity and asset returns, though not as direct, is still significant. It is productivity's relationship with the risk-free interest rate and the discount rate used in pricing stocks and bonds. Vanguard research has shown that the forecasting accuracy of discount rates or risk premiums is affected by expectations for risk-free rates over time. Risk-free interest rates, such as the yield on U.S. Treasury securities, are the building blocks on which asset return expectations are built. Productivity goes a long way towards setting expectations for those rates. In essence, higher productivity results in higher risk-free rates. The higher the risk-free rate, the higher the expectation for absolute returns on all assets. As is true of other macroeconomic indicators, this relationship is most relevant over the long term. Investors should not form any short-term return expectations based solely on changes in productivity growth. Ideas as patents. Idea generation and the technological enhancement it supports has long been acknowledged as an important driver of growth. As companies and countries apply new technologies and learn new processes, the benefits compound. Much of the existing literature on the impact of ideas on productivity focuses on patents. The typical reasoning holds that if an idea was good enough to patent, it should improve productivity even more so when it is good enough to patent in multiple countries. Diffusion, or the spread of ideas across countries and industries and the length of time they take to be applied, can also be measured. This measurement can be incorporated into an assessment of the merits of a patent, which also affect productivity enhancement. Essentially, the faster and wider a patent spreads, the greater its impact, particularly on countries or industries not yet at the technological frontier. However, not all ideas get patented. Patenting takes time and can involve regulatory hurdles that differ by country. The U.S. Patent Code was established to provide transparency to technologies and processes, in turn allowing others to use the information to develop their own new ideas. If you think about it, in reality, it's the idea behind the patented or not patented technology or process that enhances growth and productivity by facilitating other ideas. That is where our idea multiplier comes in. A new idea for measuring innovation and forecasting productivity. Understanding how innovation happens in the real world is easier if we step back from economics textbooks and consider the backstories of history's greatest breakthroughs. The lone genius going it alone, having a light bulb moment, and suddenly seeing what all others have missed is the romanticized ideal. The true evolution of game-changing ideas is much more complicated, but also more encouraging. Innovation does not occur in a vacuum. Instead, is it a manifestation of the compounding of ideas, both old and new, from disciplines related and seemingly unrelated to the innovator's region or industry? 
A great example is the Wright brothers' use of ornithological research to mimic the twist in a bird's wings and create more aerodynamic wing for their airplane. In short, invention or innovation is a function of exposure to ideas and the application and transformation of those ideas in a novel and creative way that in turn breeds more ideas. Ideas are the building block of innovation, and innovation, in turn, breeds productivity. The latter cannot occur without the former. The creation of the modern-day smartphone, for example, relied on hundreds of previous discoveries, many outside of the United States, in fields ranging from automatic data compression to zooming functionality. A key component of all modern-day smartphones is the alkali aluminosilicate sheet glass used on the touchscreen. This innovation was developed in the 1960s, but had little practical use until the consumer electronics industry experimented with the chemically strengthened glass in the mid-2000s. Measuring ideas in the revolution may seem like an abstract concept. They are not statistics one can gather from typical economic data providers, but a relatively recent innovation that itself facilitates the sharing of ideas, the internet, allows us to quantify the development and transmission of ideas throughout industries and countries by tracking academic journal citations. These journals often act as a base camp where ideas are articulated and debated before firms invest heavily in R&D and any patents are granted. Some ideas may emanate from the private sector, while others come from universities or government agencies. At the end of the day, all are built on a foundation of existing ideas, while a select few either go on to be great themselves or serve as building blocks for great ideas in the future. A groundbreaking idea should spur multiple future ideas since it represents a fundamental building block of innovation. To try to study this, we use the Clairvent Analytics Web of Science platform, a global citation database with more than 1.7 billion data points. Using those, we attempt to calculate a metric, which we have termed the idea multiplier, to measure how many future ideas are sparked by one idea today. We will demonstrate a statistically significant relationship between changes in the idea multiplier and the idea diffusion index, which I'll describe later, and subsequent changes in productivity for both industries and countries. So before stepping into the specifics of the calculation, I wanted to spend a moment walking through the framework of the idea multiplier. In general, we hope to, using the Clairvit Web of Science data, screen for the most influential ideas within each industry from 1970 through 2018. In doing so, we compile forward citation data from each idea or journal article over a three-year period, this represents more than 200 million data points. In order to solve for the issues associated with an increase in journal articles due to the proliferation of trade and industry journals over the last several years, we normalize forward citations by the total number of articles published in a given year. The idea multiplier and industry productivity. We first explored the relationship between the idea multiplier and productivity in 14 major industries. This analysis illuminated the link between changes in a specific field of knowledge and productivity changes in related industries. Our industry selection process had the following criteria. One, practical economic implications. As important as arts and literature are to society and culture, measuring their economic impact can be very ambiguous. Two, robust history of academic research. This ensured that a large enough data set to track citations and calculate an idea multiplier for the industry. Three. Matching NAICS industry classification. This provided our dependent variable, industry-level productivity growth as proxied by the real value of output per worker. Our methodology was based on traditional growth models from research by Caselli, Esquivel, and Lafort. The authors used the generalized method of moments proposed by Ariano and Bond 
to study the factors that influence an economy's growth rate. Our findings should be interpreted as estimates of how an industry's productivity growth can be expected to change based on changes in that industry's own idea multiplier. We moderated noise from the business cycle variations by organizing our data set in five-year increments, similar to the process followed by Barrow. In equation one, the dependent variable, industry productivity growth, is represented by the average annual growth over the five-year period. The idea multiplier value is taken at the start of the five-year period to help demonstrate the leading rather than coincidental relationship. As other similar studies have done, in order to account for initial levels of productivity and capital, we included a lagged variable of productivity growth and real output per worker as independent variables. Industries with high levels of initial capital, proxied by initial per capita output, typically have limited capacity to expand it further. We also included initial level of investment and years of schooling. Industries with lower starting levels of these factors receive higher marginal productivity payoff from any improvement in them. Our research shows that productivity is a function of lagged productivity, real output per worker, investment within that industry, average years of schooling within that industry, and finally, our own proprietary idea multiplier metric. We find a statistically significant relationship at the industry level between the idea multiplier and productivity growth. A 0.1 unit increase in an industry's idea multiplier will increase annual productivity growth by 2.6 percentage points from its current level over the subsequent five-year period. What does this mean for productivity? In recent years, the idea multiplier of 10 of our 14 industries has increased markedly, suggesting a productivity spike may be on the horizon. In figure six, we show that historically, industries with the largest increases or decreases in their idea multipliers have had faster or slower productivity growth. Figure seven highlights a few industries and sub-industries that experience the largest idea multiplier increases, including transportation and civil engineering, machinery, and material sciences. A notable mention is the field of genetics, which fell just short of making our list. It has experienced large idea multiplier increases in the past few years and offers exciting possibilities because of its interconnectedness with many other industries. Please note, the optimistic productivity outlook for these fields does not mean their future asset returns should be expected to exceed those of other industries. Investors should refrain from making any investment decisions based solely on our findings because many factors, particularly valuations, help explain future asset returns. Next, we want to know what our findings meant for total U.S. productivity. We calculated an overall idea multiplier covering the entire U.S. economy, allowing us to capture the effects from other research areas where industry-specific analysis wasn't feasible. The overall idea multiplier has increased by 0.02 units in the last year. This may not sound remarkable at first, but it translates to expected annual productivity growth of 1.2% over the next five years, holding all other variables constant. In figure eight, we show that the positive correlation between changes in the idea multiplier and the future of productivity, as well as the historical significance of recent increases, translates into such a number. For perspective, 1.2% productivity growth is double the post-2000 average of 0.6%. It is even higher than the 0.8% growth during the 1990s internet technology revolution. This could lead to higher wages and higher standards of living, not to mention further development of new ideas and inventions with the potential to significantly change our way of life. What is causing the idea multiplier to multiply? The combination of globalization and technology has increased the speed and frequency of knowledge sharing. This has allowed ideas to compound at a faster rate, which is the very thing that spurs innovation and higher productivity growth. Our calculations show that as recently as the year 2000, 
the United States generated half the world's published ideas. China, despite a population of 1.3 billion, had contributed only 4%. But this is changing. Figure 9 shows that since the year 2000, idea generation has diversified and global sharing intensified. According to our calculations, if the global sharing of ideas had not grown since 1990, the current idea multiplier would be 47% lower. It would be 67% lower if global sharing had never occurred, underlining the importance of the global sharing of ideas. Although our idea multiplier normalizes for the total number of articles, it's also worth considering how many future ideas are generated from one idea today. We find that in 1980, one influential idea led to 40 more ideas. The idea multiplier rose in the late 1980s, particularly in the fields of computers, electronics, and telecommunications, before declining in the mid-1990s, roughly five years before the internet bubble. For the past two decades, this ratio was stuck at around 200 to 1, which may help explain sluggish productivity growth over that time. But a recent surge in our normalized idea multiplier is clearly evident. Today, one new idea now leads to 400 additional ideas on average, 10 times the number that we saw back in the 1980s. Our optimistic outlook for future productivity growth is grounded in this change. The globalization of ideas, idea diffusion. If idea sharing in an industry is tied to productivity gains, we can well imagine this process replicating globally across national boundaries. Ideas from the U.S. have the potential to spill over and generate new concepts around the world, which in turn can then benefit the U.S. Idea sharing creates a positive externality. When a country draws on foreign ideas, its domestic pool of knowledge expands, which in turn helps other countries that access that knowledge. This process of idea diffusion has a multiplier effect. Both the creator and the user of knowledge benefit as long as the ideas can flow freely across borders. Luckily, and in contrast to the patent process, the majority of ideas looked at in our research are shared in the form of research papers and journal articles and are available for use irrespective of firm, industry, or country of origin. The idea diffusion metric, which we collected for 14 major economies, measures this sharing. The variable is a proxy for the degree to which a country uses ideas originating in other countries. As we show in figure 11, idea diffusion has consistently grown in our observed country since the 1970s. During that decade, the U.S. published more research than any other country, but it rarely looked outside for inspiration. This held true elsewhere as well. New research from that era overwhelmingly studied other domestic research, demonstrating a clear home bias in idea generation. This changed gradually as globalization encouraged knowledge transmission and technology, most influentially the internet, increased the availability and timeliness of information. Cross-pollination of ideas among countries prevailed and research momentum grew. The U.S. remains the clear leader in generating research, but because it now incorporates research from many foreign sources, the total pool of ideas has expanded by a factor of nine since 1970. Other countries have also increased their use of external research, in turn generating more domestic research of their own. Home bias, or reliance on domestic knowledge, has shrunk from 43% in 1970 to 23% in recent years. And this has real benefits for long-term productivity and growth. Again, before we get into the specifics of the calculation for the idea diffusion index, I wanted to spend a moment explaining the framework at a higher level. In calculating the idea diffusion index, for each country, we calculated the total citations each year and, separately, the citations that came from other countries. For example, country X received 700 citations in the year 2000. 80 of these came from country Y, 20 from country Z, and so on. Then, based on that data, 
we were able to determine how many of the articles each country cited originated domestically as opposed to from other countries each year. For example, in the year 2000, country Y cited 80 articles from country X, 45 from country Z, and so on. In this way, we collected time series of each country's citations. Obviously, smaller countries cited both external and internal research less than larger countries were able to. To normalize for that, we divided X home country citations in time T by the number of articles written in time T plus one, T plus two, and T plus three. Global sharing of ideas leads to a more productive world. To determine whether this wave of idea sharing benefits global growth, we began with a model similar to the one used by Caselli, Esquivel, and Lafort. It included variables traditionally considered vital to an economy's growth, such as total stock of initial physical capital, population growth rate, and government spending. We then added our measure of idea diffusion for each country to create a panel data for countries, as shown in equation two. We measure the dependent variable output by rate of growth in GDP per capita. In our work with the idea diffusion index, the dependent variable is the rate of growth of GDP per capita. We included the lagged value of the growth rate in GDP per capita as an independent variable. All other independent variables were considered at the beginning of time periods to account for the initial position of the economy. Thus, all state of the economy variables were measured at the beginning of the five-year period. The savings rate was proxied by investment as a percentage of GDP. The gross per capita GDP proxied for initial stock of capital. Other variables included were government spending and log of population growth rate. We introduced our own measure, the Idea Diffusion Index, as a proxy for the rate of labor augmenting technological progress. In our regression results, the coefficient for the Idea Diffusion Index is both positive and highly significant. We estimate that a 0.1 unit rise in the idea diffusion index increases average growth rate in real output per worker by 2% over a five-year period. This is evidence that as an economy absorbs more ideas from outside its domestic knowledge pool, it generally grows at a higher rate than if all ideas had been domestically sourced. Therefore, the sharing of ideas across borders is a significant driver of long-term global growth. Conclusion. The creation and sharing of ideas at both industry and country levels has proven to significantly boost productivity. Under reasonable assumptions, we expect productivity growth to climb above 1% over the next five years. This means higher profits for companies, higher wages for workers, and stronger global economic growth. Our optimism is grounded in the recent increase in the sharing and application of ideas as measured by our new proprietary metrics, the idea multiplier, and the idea diffusion indices. But this productivity growth is not a foregone conclusion. Steps must be taken by governments, corporations, and individuals to ensure the continued expansion of the global sharing and application of ideas. Ideas that are constrained by borders, both real and virtual, are inhibited from reaching their full potential. We find that countries with more open terms of trade have idea diffusion scores 0.11 units higher than those of less open countries, indicating productivity growth that is two percentage points higher. Developing economies have already experienced periods of rapid idea diffusion. Now, advanced economies such as the U.S. and Japan may be poised to gain greater benefits from foreign knowledge, including that emanating from these developing economies, after decades of being net knowledge exporters. Corporations must continue to invest in research and development to spur innovation. Partnering with public research institutions will magnify the number of potentially revolutionary ideas. 
In today's world of hyper-specialization, individuals should also keep up with research outside of their occupational field. That's when they have the opportunity to bring a novel approach to an existing idea, just as Orville and Wilbur Wright did. Hello, this is Peter Cipinelli, portfolio strategist on the asset allocation team of GMO. GMO is an institutional money manager founded in 1977 by, amongst others, Jeremy Grantham. To learn more about our firm, check us out at gmo.com. Today, I'll be reading a piece entitled The Passive-Aggressive Ag. Passive investing in bonds today turns prudence on its head. It is well understood among investors that there have been massive flows out of active equity funds into passive vehicles, such as index funds and ETFs. What has not been as widely appreciated is that the same thing is happening in fixed income. Nearly 40% of all core bond funds today are passively managed, up from 16% only 10 years ago. One index in particular is vacuuming up these assets, the Bloomberg Barclays U.S. Aggregate Index, commonly known as the Ag. We think this massive movement to the Ag is ill-timed and is turning the very concept of prudence on its head because the index suffers from the following problems. First, its construction is fundamentally flawed. Next, it suffers from deteriorating corporate credit quality at a concerning point in the market cycle. It has been extending duration, i.e. increasing interest rate risk, at some of the lowest yields in U.S. history. It offers some of the lowest expected returns in its history. It hovers close to 0% in real yields. And finally, it is one of the worst performing strategies in bond management universes in the last 1, 3, 5, 7, and 10 years. We first wrote about our ag-related concerns back in 2017. But with interest rates dipping back towards historically low levels, we wanted to revisit and expand on our concerns, especially given that flows into passive have accelerated recently. We also wanted to offer some concrete suggestions for what we believe is a better approach to fixed income investing. So the first problem is the age-old bums problem. It is well understood among fixed income managers that bond indices suffer from a flawed construction. Lawrence Siegel, formerly director of research at the Ford Foundation, named this flaw the bums problem. It aptly points out that a cap-weighted index for bonds is, by design, loading up on the most indebted issuers within its universe. Please note that cap-weighting makes sense in equities, but it makes no sense in bonds. This means that an index is at great risk of rotating into the wrong sectors, just as these issuers are the most vulnerable. For example, in the late 90s, the ag dramatically increased its exposure to technology and telecom bonds just in time for the tech bubble bursting. From there, it loaded up on bank credit right before the great financial crisis, the GFC. Finally, as shown in the exhibit, in 2014, the ag dramatically increased exposure to capital-intensive energy companies just before oil prices suffered a historic collapse. Remember, it behaves this way by design. Today, the index has a different problem, as it has been shifting exposure to lower-rated, triple-B-rated debt, resulting in a secular deterioration of corporate credit quality across all sectors of the ag. Prior to the GFC, the corporate component held roughly 32% in triple-B bonds. Today, that number has risen to an eye-popping 50%. Importantly, at the same time that corporate credit is going up, 
compensation for taking that risk is going down. Prior to the GFC, the typical spread between AAA and B rated bonds hovered around 200 basis points. Over the last 10 years, that number dropped to roughly 150 basis points. And in just the last two years, with spreads tightening further, it is now solidly below 100 basis points. As the worldwide hunt for yield continues, the credit sector of the ag is taking on significantly more risk, yet paying investors less for doing so. This strikes us as the very definition of imprudence. The sheer amount of corporate debt issuance is historic. However, looking at that statistic in isolation is an incomplete assessment. Instead, the focus should be on the ability to service that debt. Yet when we take a look at an important measure of that ability, debt to EBITDA of investment-grade issuers, the story is sobering. The cycle of debt to EBITDA typically follows a logical pattern. During economic recoveries, as earnings, the denominator, increase and outpace debt, the ratio typically moves downward. After the recession of 1990 to 91, for example, the economy and corporate earnings started to improve and the debt to EBITDA ratio dropped materially. Then in the 2000 recession, as earnings collapsed and debt, the numerator, became large relative to earnings, the ratio spiked. This logical pattern repeated in the 2008 recession. However, today, something strange is going on. As expected, the ratio started to improve in the 2010 post-GFC recovery. In the past few years, however, it has been rising markedly before any recession. This is odd. Debt is far outpacing earnings today, ominously raising the question as to what will happen to this ratio already at extremes when the next recession eventually hits. We're going to change gears now and talk about the problem with duration. Because there are three forces driving out duration of the ag. The first is the cruel bond math of lower yields and coupons. Without doing a rehash of intricate bond math, duration is an important calculation of bond risk. At its root, duration measures the sensitivity of a bond's price to a shift in interest rates. For example, a bond or a bond portfolio with a duration of five years means that for every 1% shift upwards in interest rates, there is a 5% drop in the price of the bond. All else being equal, the lower the yield, the higher the duration and vice versa. The longer the maturity, the higher the duration and vice versa. That's just how the math of bond risk works. As shown in Exhibit 5, yields and coupons have been dropping steadily since the GFC and the introduction of quantitative easing by the Fed. Prior to 2008, the ag's yield was close to 6%, but more recently has been at or even below 2% significantly, increasing its duration. Corporate financing behavior driving up duration, force number two. CFOs of major corporations have seen interest rates trending lower and lower over the last 10 years. Money has become increasingly cheap. So CFOs have been behaving rationally in the face of cheap money by issuing as much debt as they can and locking it in for as long as the market will let them. The last few years go in the record books as having had the most issuance of corporate debt in American history and the longest maturity. Corporate America has been selling massive numbers of bonds and the ag has been buying them. These lower yielding and longer maturity bonds have been finding their way into the ag because that's what passive instruments do. They buy bonds without any regard for price. Third force, the changing composition of the ag. The final problem is that the ag has dramatically changed its stripes 
since the GFC. See Exhibit 7, which shows that 10 years ago, the largest sector by far of the ag was securitized loans. Examples would be asset-backed securities and mortgage-backed securities. Most of these types of securities have shorter maturities and duration. Today, longer-dated treasuries are now the dominant sector of the ag, while securitized bonds have dropped off significantly. This, again, has shifted both the maturity and duration of the ag upward. The four forces combined mean that net-net, there's more risk at the worst possible time. For the last 10 years in particular, the yield on the 10-year U.S. Treasury has been steadily decreasing. In September, just a few short months ago, it hit 1.47%, near the lowest yield ever recorded in U.S. history. As an important aside, rates in Europe were at seven-century lows. While it is entirely possible that rates could have gone lower, prudence dictated that this was a period to be reducing risk by either shortening duration or reducing bond exposure. What has the ag been up to these last few years? Just the opposite. Since the GFC, the ag has extended its duration by close to 70% at basically the lowest yields in American history when any prudent investor would likely consider shortening duration, the ag did the exact opposite. Finally, let's talk about the performance of the ag. Choosing passive strategies is typically justified on a few fronts, but solid relative performance and low fees are frequently cited. For certain pockets of the equity markets, there is compelling evidence that passive strategies have done well on a relative basis. For example, active managers have historically had a difficult time adding alpha above the passive benchmark in U.S. large cap space. In Exhibit 9, we have plotted the rankings of the S&P 500 benchmark versus a universe of active managers. The passive S&P 500 index has performed quite respectably, ranking near the top third or top quarter over many timeframes. Meanwhile, the AG's performance relative to active bond managers is demonstrably poor. See Exhibit 10. In fact, over the last three, five, seven, and 10-year timeframes, the AG is ranked at or near the very bottom of a comparative universe. This is despite its low fees. What can fixed income investors do? Plenty. First, we do understand that many still need a bond portfolio that will be measured or benchmarked against the AG. The classic 60-40 balanced benchmark, in fact, uses the AG as the 40. Our advice then is to deviate from the benchmark as much as your policy, your risk budget, or your stomach allows. There are any number of ways to use that risk budget. Following is a list of things we are currently doing or have historically done in bond space. First, is underweight bonds in favor of cash or alternatives in a multi-asset class setting. The first thing we do is to own less than the benchmark weight to bonds in our multi-asset class strategies. At GMO, our flagship balance strategy as of December 31st, 2019, had an 800 basis point underweight to bonds. With a flattish yield curve and much more room for bond rates to rise rather than fall, we believe cash-like assets offer a superior risk-return trade-off. As of December, our benchmark free allocation strategy, for example, holds roughly 25% in liquid alternatives. Go out of benchmark. For those bond portfolios that have an explicit benchmarking to the ag and therefore cannot really deviate too much from its duration, we are spending our risk budget on out-of-benchmark credit sectors. The strategy is called GMO Core Plus, and its duration is roughly in line with the ag but with a notable overweight to structured credit, i.e. 
asset backs, mortgage backs, commercial mortgage backs, etc. We are finding good relative value in this sector today. In addition, the risk-reward trade-off for emerging market debt is worthy of an allocation. Third thing you can do is alpha overlay. We employ an alpha overlay strategy run by our fixed income team that takes relative value positions in various sovereign bond markets and currency markets. This overlay is capital efficient in that it requires very little cash. The duration of this overlay, because it is taking long and short positions, hovers near zero. Finally, high tracking error. The overriding message is that investors should employ high tracking error to the ag. Given its flawed construction and poor compensation for risk, we want our portfolios to look as different as possible while still maintaining client objectives and guidelines. This approach has served our clients well. The exhibit below is the same as before, but it now it includes the ranking of the GMO Core Plus strategy. It has been able to add 196 basis points of value over the ag over the last 10 years and has done so by doing many of the things that we just referenced. In conclusion, the passive ag is turning prudence on its head. It seems odd to say that a passive index is making decisions, but that is exactly the point. The ag's passive nature means it can fall victim to organic forces driving change. That is, it acts by not acting. The result is a portfolio today that has turned prudence on its head. Its corporate sector has experienced a credit deterioration at a concerning point in the credit cycle, and it has been extending duration at some of the lowest yields in U.S. history. With real yields hovering around 0%, it is offering one of the lowest expected returns in its history. While it is true it is a low-cost option, any investor in the passive ag would have suffered a costly give-up in return over the last 10 years relative to active management. Because the passive ag has organically become more aggressive over the last 10 years with little expected reward, prudence dictates a more active approach today. I'm Amy Coe from Research Affiliates, a firm known for its work in smart beta and multi-asset investing. With a focus on research and product innovation, we at Research Affiliates partner with leading financial institutions to bring our ideas to you through mutual funds, ETFs, separately managed accounts, and other vehicles. To learn more about our research insights, interactive tools, and more, drop by at researchaffiliates.com and raffi.com. I will read a piece titled, A Quick Survey of, quote-unquote, Broken Asset Classes. Introduction. Pundits, Prognosticators and even investment boards often make misleading declarations that an asset class is broken, that its prospects for earning investors a reasonable future return are very dim. These proclamations can lead to investors abandoning these assets to chase recent winners. Advisors are uniquely positioned to educate their clients about historical asset class returns and to provide context for recent, perhaps disappointing, performance. In this way, advisors can prepare their clients for substantial variations in an asset's returns. A prepared client is a confident one. And confidence begets the tenacity to hold assets over the long term, raising the likelihood of a successful investment experience via diversification, 
rebalancing, and long-term compounding. And isn't that what financial advice is all about? Warnings of the long-term impaired viability of asset classes have spooked investors through history. One of the most notorious was Business Week's cover story, The Death of Equities, published in 1979. U.S. stocks are not alone, however. Other, quote-unquote, broken asset classes abound. By the late 1990s, REITs were dismissed as losing the power to diversify a portfolio. And a 1999 article in The Economist concluded cheap oil is likely to remain so. Fast forward 20 years to the present. Headlines teem with sentiments such as, does investing in emerging markets still make sense? And is value investing dead? It might be, and here's what killed it. So history is littered with examples of reputable pundits, media outlets, and prognosticators cautioning investors about broken asset classes, typically at the heels of sagging absolute returns or poor results relative to mainstream markets. Similar warnings also occurred during investment board meetings. In his consulting days, John recalls, back in February 2000, a board meeting of an 800 million pension fund. Recent market movements, namely growth stock outperformance, had pushed the fund's asset allocation out of compliance with its investment policy statement, requiring a larger balance out of growth stocks into core bonds and small cap value. The resistance to the mandated rebalance was unsurprisingly, for those who may have lived through this period, stiff, with one board member stating that small cap value is a dead asset class. Indeed, it appeared the board preferred to eliminate small cap value rather than top it up. Fortunately, the investment policy statement compelled the rebalance to go through. And to this day, John will tell you it was one of his most rewarding experiences in investment management, given the absolute dollar value created for the fund's members as growth stocks plunged, small value stocks surged, and bonds steadily advanced during the bear market that eventually culminated in late 2002. When headlines lead to clients questioning their investment strategy, we suggest advisors use comprehensive historical return ranges to most effectively gauge recent results on an absolute basis and relative to a mainstream asset such as U.S. equities, that is the S&P 500 index. We will review how seemingly impaired assets are rarely permanently defunct. In most cases, the performance of a broken asset class is well within its range of historical returns. And outperformance often follows a period of underperformance as mean reversion takes hold. Clients benefit from a greater understanding of the potential long-term upside in recently beaten down assets. The broken asset classes. Before delving into our review, Let's begin with a few caveats. First, our selection of broken asset classes is 
far from exhaustive. In making our selection, we relied primarily on a global roster of historical articles published in the well-established financial press, including Business Week, Barron's, The Economist, and Financial Times. If your own experience includes other asset classes that have been declared broken, please let us know. Second, the headlines or conversations that question the long-term viability of an asset class represent just one opinion or voice at that time. Alongside those who warn and question, others may have presented an opposite, more favorable view. Contrarians are often an endangered species, but rarely extinct. Given our survey's purpose is to show how broken asset classes typically mend themselves with time, our sample emphasizes the former. These are the same troubled asset classes that grab the headlines, grip the attention of investors, and lead to tough questions for advisors from their clients. And finally, we are restricted by the availability of return data. Although we use well-known proxies with an extended return history, few asset classes other than U.S. stocks and high-yield bonds have a monthly series longer than a half century. A notable example is emerging market stocks. In our study, we use a return history for EM stocks that begins in 1985. Now, a time span of just over three years is a relatively short time in the capital markets. And while results may not be statistically significant, they can be economically meaningful. Ultimately, our survey includes seven asset classes, beginning with U.S. stocks following the infamous Death of Equities article published in August 1979, and ending with a similar chorus of claims surrounding value investing and EM stocks 40 years later. So at this point, I'd invite you to see a table in our article which shows the list of asset classes and other relevant information used in our sample. What constitutes broken? All seven of the broken asset classes in our survey posted poor performance over the three years prior to the warnings that they were impaired. Before we declare them broken, however, let's take a look at their performance in the context of each asset's long-term history, both in absolute terms and relative to mainstream U.S. stocks. The warning date we use represents the month in which a published article or live conversation strongly questioned the long-term viability of the asset class. Now, three-year performance results leading up to the warning date generally hovered near the lower ranges of long-term outcomes. At the time of the August 1979 warning about U.S. stocks, their uninspired 5% annualized three-year return had slumped into the bottom quartile of returns since 1926. Approximately half of the group, commodities, high-yield bonds, and value stocks, generated negative returns that fell within the worst decile of each asset's long-term historical three-year rolling return. These are disappointing and frequent outcomes, but they are not atypical 
or improbable. Broadly, performance results relative to the S&P 500 tended to be more severe than absolute outcomes, suggesting that anchoring on mainstream assets is pervasive. For instance, three asset classes, REITs, small value stocks, and EM stocks, managed to deliver returns slightly above their long-term median levels in the three years preceding the declaration's warning that they were defunct. But when viewed relative to mainstream assets, all three suffered relative shortfalls, trailing U.S. stocks by up to 14% a year over the three-year period preceding their respective warning dates. They are not alone. Every asset class in our subset, except for one, trailed the S&P 500 in the three years leading up to the warning date. The three-year relative losses of four of the five stragglers fell into the worst quintile of all historical outcomes, with two in the bottom decile. So, despite alarming warnings of the impaired viability of asset classes, the performance of broken asset classes is not particularly exceptional generally falling within the normal, albeit bottom, range of return outcomes. Mean reversion and missed opportunities. Far too many investors focus on the rear view mirror and react to fear-inducing headlines. Doing so incurs the risk that investors will miss good opportunities. Markets are supposed to pay a risk or fear premium to reward risk-bearing. Perception of risk and fear tend to go hand in hand. Asset classes get sold down to bargain levels because people are fearful. And as our colleague Rob Arnott regularly says, when risks and bad news are known to the market and fears prevalent, it's time to buy what's out of favor, unloved, and legitimately creating fear. Fear-based anomalies persist because their genesis is in humans' primal impulses. In the five years after an asset class was declared broken, each roared back in a strong, and for many, swift rebound. All except one snapped back within one year, generating returns that ranged from 14% for U.S. stocks to 68% for commodities. The sole dawdler, REITs, rebounded in 18 months, ultimately delivering a cumulative 86% return at the five-year mark, the weakest performance of the group. We recognize the substantial survivorship bias in our survey, having personally survived most of these episodes ourselves. So to be more comprehensive, we also plot other periods when these asset classes fell within their lowest decile of historical three-year rolling absolute returns. A similar pattern unfolds. A large majority, or 88%, of all observations deliver a positive five-year return. The average five-year cumulative return across all observations is 80%, or approximately 12% a year, suggesting both the presence and strength of mean reversion. 
How do the asset classes perform on a relative basis? Recall that the broken asset classes in our survey had mostly fallen short of the performance of the S&P 500 in the years leading up to the proclamation they were broken. In the subsequent three years, these asset classes surpassed the performance of U.S. stocks on a cumulative basis by an average of 45% or 13% a year. After five years, the cumulative excess return of REITs, commodities, small value stocks, and high yield bonds versus the S&P 500 averaged 101% or 15% a year. Over this five-year span, the four asset classes fared significantly better than U.S. stocks, with cumulative excess returns ranging from 10% high-yield bonds to 158% for commodities. The press is often quick to label asset classes broken, but rarely is this the case, although exceptions do exist. For instance, the German and Russian stock markets during World War I, Japanese and German stock markets during World War II, and the Egyptian stock market in the early 1950s all collapsed. The near obliteration of a stock market has happened, but it is an extraordinary occurrence. The advisor's role. We are hardwired to pay attention to headlines with fear-provoking warnings. It's easy to fall prey to nowcasts and believe that what's already happened is a forecast of more of the same. While such predictions may sound cogent, they rarely offer insight. Our simple survey of broken asset classes reveals the following observations. First, warnings of the impaired viability of asset classes tends to be exaggerated. The three-year performance leading up to the time that an asset class is pronounced broken is typically within the normal, albeit wide range of historical return outcomes. And second, returns are time varying and rebounds can be strong. After assets are either declared broken or declined to their lowest historical decile of three-year outcomes, the majority, or 90%, rebound within five years. The recovery also tends to be meaningful. The average cumulative five-year subsequent return across all observations is 80% or 12% a year. Our primary point is not to conclusively say that bottom decile performance will be succeeded by brilliant subsequent returns. Our survey is simply not comprehensive. And even if it was, the future will not exactly mimic the past. Rather, our intent is to highlight how the advisor is uniquely positioned to prepare clients for the wide range of absolute and relative returns that capital markets will inevitably throw at them. In most cases, parroting Mark Twain, reports of asset class deaths are greatly exaggerated. But sadly, these misleading proclamations can lead to investors abandoning these assets to chase recent winners. These types of poor investment decisions can be prevented, however, with proper preparation, such as 
educating clients about historical asset class returns to provide context for recent, perhaps disappointing, performance. This is particularly important with diversifying assets as compared to the more traditional asset classes of stocks and investment-grade bonds. By definition, the role of diversifiers, such as high-yield bonds and commodities, is not to mimic mainstream markets like the S&P 500. Actor Richard Klein once said, confidence is preparation. Everything else is beyond your control. Recent spans of market tumult has certainly taught us that returns are well outside of our control, but an advisor can prepare their clients for substantial variations in an asset's returns and obtain buy-in for these wide and ultimately unknowable ranges. A prepared client is a confident one and confidence begets long-termism. And long-termism helps tune out the noise and raises the likelihood of a successful investment experience via diversification, rebalancing, and long-term compounding. And isn't that what financial advice is all about? Hi, this is Sean Duffin. I am an investment director at Cambridge Associates. Cambridge is a global investment firm providing investment services to various clients, including endowments and foundations, private clients, and pensions. For those interested, Cambridge is launching a podcast September 14th called Unseen Upside, a show about investments beyond their returns. Season one focuses on the technology changing our daily lives and the people who are investing in it. I hope you'll join us for the first episode as we travel to a dairy farm in Vermont to learn about tech and sustainable farming. Today, what I'm going to do is read a piece called The Benefits of Global Diversification that I wrote back in April 2020. While the paper is a little dated, I think you'll find that many of the concepts in here are still highly relevant today. For those wishing to follow along with the charts in the paper, the easiest way to find it is simply type Cambridge Associates Global Diversification in a Google search, and you'll see that it's the first link that comes up. Okay, let's get into it. Benefits of Global Diversification Investors are now grappling with the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic, which has sent global equities into bear market territory as the threat of a severe recession weighs on the global economy. These are challenging, uncertain times for equity markets. The full extent and severity of the crisis will not be known for some time. In such an environment, it can be tempting to pick winning countries, whether from the perspective of macroeconomics, corporate earnings strength, or even resilience to COVID-19. But this is a dangerous approach. We recommend investors reacquaint themselves with our process for weathering this uncertainty, discussed in our recent publication, Vantage Point, The Bear Awakens. As investors work to ensure their portfolios will be robust through this downturn and are positioned for the eventual rebound, we offer a review of the critical benefits of global equity diversification and examine considerations related to home bias, rebalancing strategies, and currency impacts. Consider the following scenario. A thriving economy reaches the end of a decade of equity market dominance, supported by numerous key factors. Strong consumer spending and promising technological developments help support robust earnings growth at the nation's innovative companies. Even with the tight labor market, inflation remains dormant. Consumer sentiment thrives, and equities reach all-time high levels. 
What this describes is the Japanese economy as it reached its apogee in the late 1980s, just before it took a nosedive and experienced a decade of equity market misery. Japan's experience is one specific example of a situation where a dominant equity market can sharply reverse course, highlighting the perils of complacency with equity allocations, to intentionally focusing on today's strongest markets, or to letting winners ride without rebalancing. Such behavioral risks can be mitigated through global diversification, which helps ensure that investors have at least some exposure to the next winner when leadership changes. Investors can't reliably predict which country will post the highest returns in the future, even if they knew in advance which country would have the strongest economic growth. So building a global diversified portfolio is a logical, prudent strategy for those who wish to minimize downside risk and preserve wealth over the long term. Global equity rotation. For decades, investors drank the equity diversification Kool-Aid, minimizing home bias within their equity portfolios. But after the magnificent performance of the past decade, the United States has dominated all major equity markets, and some investors have again questioned the benefits of geographic diversification. Why should U.S.-based investors bother diversifying into international equities when the S&P 500 index trounced the returns of other global equity regions in the last decade? And given that equity strength combined with the greenback's strength, the temptation to concentrate in the United States is not limited to U.S. investors. Indeed, U.S. equities advanced more than 250% from 2010 to 2019 in U.S. dollar terms, with no other major developed or emerging equity market coming close. Some of this effect has come from a growing valuation gap that could collapse in coming years, but some has resulted from much better fundamentals in the United States than in many European and Asian markets. In hindsight, investors employing equity diversification would have been better served by concentrating on U.S. markets. But hindsight doesn't predict future winners. Equity market leadership has shifted in every decade dating back to 1950. Figure 1 demonstrates the rotation of equity performance across 10 different countries on a decade-by-decade -decade basis dating back to 1950. An equal-weighted portfolio across these 10 regions with annual rebalancing would have outperformed the United States in five of the past seven decades. Due to the rotation in leaders and laggards, Having exposures across all countries in one basket helps shield portfolios from the concentrated losses that individual markets can suffer in market downturns. For example, U.S.-based investors feeling confident in the U.S. equity market after its dominance in the 1990s would have been demoralized by performance in the 2000s. Australia and Canada posted excess returns of 37% and 27% for the decade, respectively, while the United States lagged significantly losing 31%. An equal-weighted portfolio on an excess return basis would have lost only 15%, buoyed by the strong returns from Australia and from Canada. In theory, the equal-weighted portfolio reduced volatility, but in practice, U.S.-based institutional investors are not equally weighting 10 different countries. A more common split, such as a 50% U.S. and 50% non-U.S. basket, might be more applicable. Using these weights, the same result holds. This portfolio would have outperformed the U.S. portfolio in five of seven decades. Perhaps more striking is just how much parity major equity regions have seen over the past 50 years. A basic analysis of 18 countries included in the MSCI World Index shows further evidence of the rotation effect. 
While this analysis does not account for the level of performance dispersion among countries, it indicates that five different countries spent more time in the top two quartiles than the United States. Over rolling three-year periods, U.S. equities reached the top two quartiles among the 18 countries 56% of the time. This number is somewhat surprising. U.S. equities had just slightly better than a 50-50 chance of finishing in the top half among major markets in any given three-year period. On the flip side, the three-year U.S. equity returns fell into the bottom quartile 22% of the time among regions. History tells us that U.S. equities have typically held up better than global equities during bear market periods, as stated in our fourth quarter 2018 edition of Vantage Point. Investors that don't rebalance after such a run of outperformance could see even larger allocations to U.S. equities by the end of the drawdown, particularly with manager structures employing regional or single country strategies. Or investors might be tempted to concentrate on the markets where economies and or earnings have held up best. Thus, the equity portfolio then essentially becomes a momentum strategy by chasing the recent winner. But this could be problematic for investors that don't consider valuations. Starting valuations can be a useful guide in recovery phases after bear market drawdowns. For example, both U.S. and developed ex-U.S. equities lost more than 50% peak to trough in the 2000-2003 bear market period, but developed ex-U.S. equities bested U.S. equities by a differential of about 60 percentage points in the subsequent three-year period. Developed ex-U.S. equities were trading at steep valuation discounts at the beginning of the period, near the bottom quartile of the relative valuation history. On the other hand, developed ex-U.S. equities lagged U.S. equities in the aftermath of the global financial crisis, but there was no valuation discount at the beginning of that period. In fact, developed ex-U.S. equities were still slightly expensive relative to U.S. equities in early 2009. After market volatility in early 2020, the relative valuation, based on our cyclically adjusted price-to-cash earnings ratio, between developed ex-U.S. equities and U.S. equities had moved to just the second percentile versus its history since 1979. This suggests that relatively cheap developed ex-U.S. equities could bounce back more sharply in a recovery. Still, valuations are not as explanatory for shorter-term outcomes and have a stronger relationship with longer, 7-10 to year, subsequent returns. Japan and the risks of backing the wrong equity horse. The Japanese equity market boom in the 1980s is now considered one of the greatest asset price bubbles of all time. Indeed, Japan held the largest weight in the MSCI World Index for several years in the late 1980s, at one point comprising 44% of the developed stock market. Two noteworthy factors could have contributed to this outsized position. MSCI's weighting methodology was based on full float market capitalization rather than free float at the time, and Japanese companies had a preponderance of cross-shareholdings, which may have artificially boosted market capitalizations. Still, on December 31, 1989, the four largest companies in the world were Japanese banks, and Tokyo Electric Power and Toyota Motor Corporation also ranked among the top 10 largest. The Industrial Bank of Japan was nearly twice the size of General Electric. Japanese investors that chased their home market's exuberance and piled hefty exposures into the Nikkei index soon learned a hard lesson about the dangers of home bias. As the exuberance unfolded, the Japanese equity market reached its peak in 1989, both in local currency and U.S. dollar terms. From late 1981 through early 1989, 
the domestic equity market surged by roughly 400% or 800% in U.S. dollar terms. Japan's dominant run was followed by one of the worst decades on record across major regions. The MSCI Japan Index has still not recovered its 1989 peaks in local currency terms, as shown in Figure 3. Even from a U.S. dollar-based investor standpoint, the Japanese equity market did not recover its 1989 peaks in U.S. dollar terms until 2017, nearly 30 years. Now, the global equity landscape looks much different. Of the top 20 companies by market cap, 18 are now U.S. listed, with the two exceptions being Swiss-based global companies. Does this imply that the U.S. market will go the way of Japan? Not necessarily. But this serves as a reminder that equity market dominance can shift, and investors should be prepared for that eventuality. The currency factor. Dollar weakness tends to be associated with U.S. equity underperformance, and vice versa. Exposure to equities outside of the investor's home country creates foreign currency risk, and for U.S. dollar-based investors, that is true even when foreign currencies are pegged to the dollar. Investors must consider the outlook for the U.S. dollar, and as part of this consideration, be mindful of the unprecedented fiscal stimulus taking shape in the United States right now. Even prior to the COVID-19 crisis, the U.S. deficit had reached nearly $1 trillion in fiscal 2019, running at 4.6% of GDP due to tax cuts and a ramp-up in government spending, coupled with a current account deficit that had been running between 2% and 3% for several years. Some projections indicate that the fiscal deficit could reach nearly $4 trillion in 2020, making it the largest deficit in history, implying almost 20% of GDP. Such policies are likely to weigh on the dollar over the long term. The U.S. dollar has enjoyed a prolonged period of strength and appears richly valued after enjoying a rally of more than 43% versus a fixed-weight basket of developed markets currencies since 2011. The U.S. dollar has typically rallied in periods of market stress and has been in high demand during the COVID-19 sell-off, but any signs of reversal in dollar strength could be supportive factors for the non-U.S. equity allocations of U.S. dollar-based investors going forward. Unhedged non-U.S. dollar-based investors must be cognizant of the key drivers that could have an impact on their domestic currencies. For example, risk of potential breakup in the eurozone, or UK sterling vulnerabilities related to twin deficits and Brexit. Wither globalization. Correlations have been secularly shifting upwards over the past five decades, and arguably the benefits of global equity diversification have fallen, particularly during drawdown periods. Indeed, the emergence of multinational corporations in various markets means that in recent decades, supply chains became more interconnected than ever, with companies increasingly reliant on foreign markets. However, this relationship could be changing. Even before the challenges stemming from the coronavirus outbreak, rising trade barriers between major trading partners began stifling long-standing trade relationships. The U.S.-China trade conflict and the rise of nationalism had already threatened to undermine these growing relationships. The potential disruption between the United Kingdom and the European Union also has the potential to reverse a long-standing trade partnership. Further disruption in the global supply chain stemming from the coronavirus spread could continue to lessen the increasing co-movements that these regions have seen in the past decade. In fact, rolling tenure correlations have ticked lower since peaking during the global financial crisis. Even if the overarching trend of globalization resumes in the future, 
investors should not assume that exposure to domestic companies with global operations equates to equity diversification. Indeed, it is important for domestic companies to have diversified sources of revenue, but the political, economic, regulatory, and currency risks of the home country cannot be entirely diversified away. Moreover, investors relying solely on the domestic portfolio risk becoming too concentrated in certain sectors while also foregoing opportunities to invest in leading companies domiciled in foreign markets. Conclusion As investors evaluate next steps in dealing with the unfolding effects of the COVID-19 crisis, it is time to review the benefits of global diversification. Regional leadership changes over time, as evidenced by 70 years of returns. The run-up in U.S. equities over the decade from 2010 to 2019 has quickly shifted the mentality of investors that have a short memory specifically those that saw the benefit of diversification from 2000 to 2009, during which time GlobalX U.S. equities led. The impressive performance of U.S. equities is not unlike the exuberance experienced in Japan in the 1980s. Investors should avoid hefty country bets, whether intentional or due to complacency and rebalancing. Many successful investors today benchmark their country and regional exposures to a global cap-weighted benchmark like the MSCI All-Country World Index, rather than static weights, tactically deviating from benchmark allocations only when major valuation dislocations or other anomalies appear. Globalization could ebb in the future, setting the stage for global equity rotations. With these factors in mind, we believe that investors must ensure adequate diversification across equity regions to ensure that portfolios are robust in equity market crashes and in the ensuing recoveries and to lessen the risk of dramatically underperforming global benchmarks. That concludes my paper. Thank you very much for listening, and I'd especially like to thank the Meb Faber Show for inviting me to participate on this podcast. Have a great day, everyone. Hi, this is Greg Obenchain. I'm a partner and director of credit at Bradad Advisors, a quantitative research-driven investment firm that invests across asset classes in search of the highest risk-adjusted returns. We publish a widely read weekly email, and you can learn more about us and read our past research at verdadcap.com, which is spelled V-E-R-D-A-D-C-A-P.com. I'm going to read a piece titled Sales and Distributions, How Revenue Growth and Distributions Drive Equity Returns. This was originally published on September 28, 2020, as the second of a three-part series that decomposed equity returns with the aim of understanding the source of returns. Return decomposition is an approach that I have found useful in the debt markets, and here I apply this methodology to the equity market. Sales and distributions, how revenue growth and distributions drive equity returns. Last week, we introduced a method for decomposing equity returns. We found that revenue growth is the largest driver of equity returns, followed by changes in valuation multiples and net distributions to shareholders, with changes in multiples driving the vast majority of year-to-year volatility. Below we show a simplified version of last week's decomposition. The average annual return of the U.S. stock market from 1996 to 2020 was 11%, of which 6% came from revenue growth, 2% and 2% came from net distributions. This simplified aggregate conceals a significant diversity in how investors earn money in the equity market. To take one extreme, Amazon has compounded at over 20% per year with returns for shareholders made entirely through revenue growth with negative distributions, meaning the company has borrowed and issued equity to grow. On the other extreme, Kimberly-Clark has barely grown at all, but it has provided investors with stable annual distributions leading to a healthy long-term return. 
If we look at the return decomposition, Kimberly-Clark's average annual return of 9% came 2% from revenue growth, 1% from change in multiple, and 5% from net distributions. Amazon's was 29% from revenue growth, 4% from change in multiple, and negative 2 from net distributions for an average annual return of 32%. And I'll note that the compound return is lower at 24%. But our return decomposition uses average annual returns to decompose returns. These represent two successful equity value creators, but not every company is an Amazon or a Kimberly Clark. Indeed, the market is also rife with failure and value destruction. The worst performing segment of the market is dominated by failed Amazons. They could purchase revenue growth, but it never exceeds the capital invested. A classic example of this would be the electric scooters that once littered many major cities. These companies briefly grew revenue at astonishingly high rates, but the aggregate revenue generated never exceeded the capital deployed to buy and maintain the scooters. We can divide the equity market into four broad types of companies along two dimensions. Growth, those that grow revenue at rates above or below the market average, and value creation, those that are creating or destroying economic value, defined as the sum total of revenue growth and distributions. Value creators have a positive combination of sales growth and net distributions. Either component can be negative, but the combination must be positive. Value destroyers have a negative combination of sales growth and net distributions. Either one component is more negative than the other, or they are both negative. We summarize this in the matrix below. And this is a simple two by two matrix. Across the top, we have value creation, value creators on the left and value destroyers on the right. And down the side, we have sales growth with high sales growth on the top and low sales growth on the bottom. We're gonna start on the left-hand side of this matrix with value creators. We're gonna call high sales growth value creators profitable growth and low sales growth value creators low growth value creators. Amazon is an example of a profitable growth company and Kimberly Clark is an example of a low growth value creator. These two types of companies are most of the market and companies tend to reside in one or the other quadrant with some persistence. Now looking at the right side of the matrix at value destroyers, high sales growth value destroyers are, we'll call unprofitable growth and low sales growth value destroyers we'll call low growth value destroyer. Unprofitable growth companies would include scooter companies and many oil and gas companies prior to the oil sell-off in 2015. Low growth value destroyers include many oil and gas companies after 2015 and several struggling retail companies. Both value destroyer quadrants are a smaller part of the universe and there's far less persistence as companies either move to value creation, restructure, or disappear. These four types of companies perform very differently. Below, we show returns from 1996 to 2020 for each of these four categories of stock. We divide the companies each year based on the prior year's growth and value creation, and then show the return decomposition the following year. The data is revenue weighted because it better shows the underlying dynamics. Profitable growth companies had compound annual returns of 8%. Low growth value creators had annual returns of 10%. Unprofitable growth companies had compound annual returns of negative 3%, and low growth value destroyers had compound annual returns of 6%. The perhaps unexpected result is that the highest returning segment is the low growth value creators. While sales growth is a large contributor to returns in the aggregate data set, 
It turns out that when earnings distributions impact returns, they impact them a lot. The segment of low growth value creators only grows revenue at 3%, but it has net distribution returns of 4% and is helped by multiples expanding. Profitable growth has much higher revenue growth, but that is offset by multiples contracting and no contribution from distributions. The unprofitable growth segment is the most interesting. It has companies with extremely high revenue growth in multiples, but these companies are burning investor capital. On average, these valuations fall dramatically, and the return on a strategy that continually invests in this kind of company is negative. It is also the smallest segment, as it is difficult for a company to persist here. Low growth value destroyers do not suffer the same fate, if only because of their low starting multiples. On average, multiples actually expand for this quadrant, but they are still consuming investor capital and on average have lower returns with much higher volatility. The below chart shows the market cap weighted returns of each of these four types of companies. Punchline from this chart is that low growth value creators have the highest cumulative returns, profitable growth second, low growth value destroyers third and relatively close to profitable growth, and unprofitable growth a distant fourth and actually with a line below the starting level as it destroys. It has negative returns. While sales growth may be the largest component of stock returns, it is uncertain and comes with high multiples that are also uncertain and have more room to fall. The history of growth versus value investing would suggest that investors have traditionally overpaid for growth from sales relative to growth from distributions, which are more predictable. Even within the value destroyer category, a category which should have terrible returns, the low growth stocks do better, perhaps because they start at less than half the multiple of the unprofitable high growth stocks. In our decomposition, the only difference between the two categories is that the low growth value destroyers have rising multiples on average. Value investing is premised on the idea that multiples drive the majority of stock market volatility and that multiples are mean reverting with low multiple stocks tending toward increased multiples and high multiple stocks tending toward multiple contraction. This phenomenon explains why the segment of low growth value destroyers above does surprisingly well, despite bad fundamentals. Over the long term, ignoring everything else and just focusing on multiples turns out to be the most profitable strategy, even more profitable than investing in companies that distribute profits or profitable growth firms, though it does require annual rebalancing into the cheapest companies. Below, we show the exact same data set as in figures four and five with returns for a naively defined value as the lowest 20% of sales to TEV versus growth defined as the highest 20% of sales versus total enterprise value. And in this chart, value handily outpaces growth and in fact is higher returning than any of the four categories in the previous chart. Lower multiples turn out to be an extraordinary predictor of returns, although with much more volatility, periodically experiencing dramatic drawdowns. Note the sharp fall off in returns of value as compared to growth over the past few years. This resulted from valuation multiples for both value and growth failing to mean revert as they usually do. For the past three years and in June 2019, changes in multiples have reduced growth returns by just 0.6% versus a long-term average reduction of 8%. While changes in value multiples have increased returns by the same 0.6%, for the past three years, ending June 2019, changes in multiples have reduced growth returns by just 0.6% versus a long-term average reduction of 8%. On the other hand, 
value multiples have also increased by 0.6%, but versus a long-term average increase of 6%. Below, we show the historical spread between value multiple expansion and growth multiple compression. When above zero, growth has higher returns from multiple changes than value does. And in the chart below, we show that the only time that the line has been above zero is in 1998, 1999, 2015, and 2019. Over long histories, multiple changes are averaged out, but in any shorter period, the volatility of multiples can lead to significant distortions. It is true that returns come mostly from sales growth, but that does not mean that the best path to making returns is to try to capture that sales growth. It is often expensive and unpredictable. And while it can deliver spectacular returns, it turns out that earnings and value often deliver higher and less volatile returns. Hi, my name is John Pease, and I'm a quantitative researcher on the asset allocation team at GMO. GMO is a global private investment firm founded in 1977, which manages approximately $70 billion. On behalf of Ben Inker, the head of GMO's asset allocation team, I'll be reading a piece we co-authored in late 2020 called Value, If Not Now, When. It is often hard to take your mind off discomfort. The drumbeat of worry can be made louder, though, if your attempt at mental respite involves, as did mine, reading a book called Migraine. No matter how lyrically pain is evoked, or how well-crafted its description, it unsurprisingly still reminds the reader of pain. And the year is 2020, and we are value investors. The performance of value from 2007 to 2019 was, to put it mildly, uninspiring. This was not altogether surprising, considering the run-up that value had prior to that period. We at GMO did warn of the peril of investing in cheap stocks at a time when their valuations relative to the broad market looked to be at a record high. But the mind-numbing pain of holding value anywhere in the world over the last 12 months has been something else entirely. It has shattered the record losses of the factor over any year-long period, tech bubble included. It is time, then, to repeat our message from last year, though this time more forcefully. No matter where you look, no matter how you slice it, value looks cheap. After a very difficult 2020, U.S. value, as GMO defines it, now trades at the fourth percentile of relative valuation on the blend of metrics that we generally use to evaluate the group's attractiveness. You might object that this is a non-standard definition of value, and if cheap stocks were chosen using some other metric, they might look less interesting. To address this concern, we can analyze how attractive the cheapest half of the U.S. looks when built on 11 different metrics, including GMO's proprietary price to scale. No matter how we define cheap stocks, whether on book or free cash flow or forward earnings, they look attractive relative to history. Ten of the 11 definitions of value presented are cheaper than they've been in at least 90% of months since 1971, with the cheap half on price to income the misfit. The relative valuation of this group looks a little bit less compressed at the 13th percentile, but it bears mention that in the cheapest month for U.S. value of all time, February of 2000, the cheap half based on this one metric was a similar outlier. While most definitions of value look cheap in relative terms, we often hear concerns about this attractiveness being an artifact of the universe within which we are choosing cheap stocks. If we are simply selecting the cheapest securities within the U.S., for instance, we will today be comparing beaten-down energy companies 
and yield-starved banks with profitable technology behemoths. These two groups should clearly have a significant pricing discrepancy. To address this, we can use industry classification standards to select the cheapest half of companies within each sector, group, or industry, looking at the relative valuations of the cheapest companies in the U.S. when we strip out the class bets. No matter what we do, U.S. value still looks exceptionally cheap. But value being cheap within sectors, groups, and industries doesn't assuage everyone's fears. Some people worry that value is cheap because it is picking small caps, and small caps deserve to trade at a significant discount, particularly given the disproportionately hard hit the COVID-19 shock has had on smaller companies. Whether we select value exclusively within large caps or exclusively within small caps, value still looks quite cheap. But perhaps it isn't about size per se. Maybe it's about the ultra-high quality FANGMs being quite expensive. In the broad universe and in the large cap space, even if we industry neutralize, this might distort our view given the massive weights that these companies have. To test this, we can exclude the FANGMs from our fishing pool and see whether value looks cheap relative to the ex-FANGM market. It does. There are other specifications we can alter to check whether value's cheapness is truly robust. We can exclude IT, presumably the most expensive sector in the U.S., or we can exclude energy and financials presumably the least expensive sectors in the region. We can weigh securities differently, avoiding full cap weighting where large companies are likely to drive results. We can pick value only within the high quality or the junky sections of the market. Without exception, value, at least from a historical perspective, remains exceptionally cheap. Though history is often a good guide, it's important to recognize that markets can and have changed. Many of the high-flying companies of today are capital light and R&D heavy, a combination that with traditional accounting can lead to significant misreads of who is cheap and who is not. If this were a substantial problem, then we should see that value looks particularly cheap within industries where there is a lot of intangible investment, but not in industries where intangibility is low. This does not seem to be the case. The new investment mix of companies is not the only change we have seen in markets. Over the past 20 years, antitrust agencies have been significantly less active at the same time that advances in technology have brought about increasing returns to scale in industries where there previously were none. These two forces, sometimes separately and frequently in unison, have eroded competition and enabled the rise of so-called superstar firms, extraordinarily profitable, highly scalable, oligopolistic businesses. The corollary to industry superstars is that other companies within the same industries see their market share dwindle and their profitability crash, leading to compressed valuations for good reason. But when we look at the relationship between profit concentration, the gap between the profitability of the largest four companies within an industry and all their smaller competitors, and the attractiveness of cheap companies within industries, we again see no relationship. In fact, Value looks cheaper in more competitive industries. This doesn't mean that value traps within industries with a dominant company don't exist, but it does mean that low-cost companies abound even where competition is still alive and well. It's clear that value is very cheap in relative space, and that cheap portfolios can be formed even when we avoid industries where traditional accounting does a poor job or where monopolies are wiping out the competition. 
This is not enough to want to invest in value, however, if we don't believe that valuations have a reason to rise. In that case, we need to understand whether absent valuation changes, that is, even if value were to remain as cheap as it is today, we should expect the factor to outperform. It turns out that we should. We can see this by breaking out value's relative returns into four pieces. It's fundamental undergrowth to the market. It's yield advantage due to being cheap. The profits from selling holdings that have become expensive and replacing them with cheaper securities, which we call rebalancing, and changes in relative valuations. Given that valuations cannot trend in either direction forever, it is the first three, growth, yield, and rebalancing, that determine whether value's structural prospects are positive or negative. And both before and after 2006, when we put those three together, we see value outperforming the market. We do have reason to believe that valuations will provide a tailwind to value, however. After all, low relative valuations for cheap stocks have generally begotten higher relative valuations in the future. Though this is congruent with investors demanding a premium for holding stocks perceived to be risky, it is also the kind of phenomena we have come to expect from watching the cycle of a style performing poorly, becoming unloved, and then suddenly surprising on the upside as investors discover that their expectations, for one reason or another, were little or a lot too low. Though our emphasis up to now has been on value within the U.S., it is important to note that internationally, both in developed and emerging markets, value also looks like a remarkable bargain. In many cases, in fact, we have never seen cheap stocks looking cheaper than they do today. So if the undergrowth of U.S. value worries you too much, or if the quality of European value is not to your liking, or if you deem real rates in the developed world to be too low for value to win, we believe opportunities still abound to allocate to cheap companies at remarkably cheap levels elsewhere. If value stocks are extremely cheap versus the market, it is necessarily the case that growth stocks are very expensive. In absolute terms, that is even more true given that the overall market is trading at elevated valuations relative to history. In fact, on a price-to-sales basis, growth stocks are even more expensive than they were in 2000. And while they are not quite as extreme on a PE basis, they are certainly far more expensive than any time before or since. At what point do you call that a bubble? While growth stocks and the market as a whole have been quite expensive for several years now, Jeremy Grantham has frequently been at pains to remind us that there is more to an investment bubble than elevated valuations. According to him, what the true investment bubbles have in common is a mania on the part of market participants and a sense that if people would only jump on board, Everybody ought to be rich. A bull market that goes on and on without capturing the public imagination probably isn't a bubble. A poor investment on a forward-looking basis, perhaps, but not a bubble. Until this year, the post-global financial crisis bull market has been notable for how boring it had been. Certainly, the term fangs became well-known to everyone in the investment world, and many people outside of it. But compared to the frenzy for Internet stocks in the late 1990s or indeed for flipping condos in the mid 2000s, there just didn't seem to be the type of mania that a bubble requires. And then 2020 happened. Perhaps it was the lockdown that left people with plenty of time on their hands and no sports to bet on. But this year has seen more crazy activity in the stock market than anything we have seen since 2000. 
whether it was Hertzstock rising tenfold in the spring as a high beta recovery play, despite the fact that the company was bankrupt and shareholders wouldn't have benefited from a recovery, even if it happened, or Kodak stock rising 30-fold after announcing it was going to start making chemicals to enable the production of COVID-19 treatments. Very odd and speculative things have been going on. As a more traditionally growthy example, Tesla has risen some 800% since the fall of 2019, on the back of 17% growth in the vehicles sold. It now has a greater market cap than the sum of all other U.S. automakers, all the European automakers, and all the Korean automakers, with Honda, Mazda, and Nissan thrown in for good measure. That collection of companies sold approximately 100 times as many cars as Tesla did in 2019. But Tesla isn't the craziest thing that happened this year. And that is true even if we restrict ourselves to looking only at electric vehicle companies named after Nikola Tesla. This spring, a would-be Tesla called Nikola went public via a reverse merger with a SPAC at a valuation of $3 billion. In the 2020 EV frenzy, it rose tenfold to a market cap of about $30 billion. This company is a rare bird in the stock market, a pre-revenue manufacturing company. In fact, Nikola is not only pre-revenue, having never sold any vehicles it has produced, it has also never produced a vehicle. Further, it has not even built the factory in which it aspires to build the trucks that it has yet to sell. This summer, a report came out detailing allegations that almost all of the claims of Nikola's Elon Musk wannabe founder over the few years of its existence were lies. That founder, Trevor Milton, was forced to resign and the company has yet to meaningfully refute any of the claims made in the report. The stock duly fell, but even after information came out showing that pretty much everything the company has claimed to accomplish in its history was a lie, it still has a market cap more than three times its value at its public debut less than a year ago, a valuation that was presumably predicated on the company's claims actually being true. With the combination of some of the highest valuations ever seen and clear corresponding manic investor behavior, it seems clear to us that growth stocks are indeed in a bubble. But what about the catalyst? The question of what will drive mean reversion for value is the most common question we get from clients today, for understandable reasons. Value has been losing for a long time, and valuation itself hasn't been able to arrest the underperformance. Hearing us say we don't know what the catalyst will be is not that reassuring, even if it has the benefit of being true. That's not to say we don't have any ideas. A return to more normal economic times could certainly be a catalyst. And indeed, the news of strong results from vaccine candidates has led to strong returns for value for at least a day or two at a time. This market response certainly makes sense. The average value stock relies more on the kind of face-to-face -face activity that the pandemic has made difficult than is the case for the average growth stock. If it is indeed the case that widespread vaccination allows the world to come back to something like normal by the end of 2021, it seems very likely to be a continuing net positive for value. Given the scale of the discount at which value stocks are trading, the move from that alone could be quite large. A potential further catalyst in that vein would be interest rates rising above today's rock-bottom levels. Even a relatively small upward move would be positive for sectors such as financials, which are overwhelmingly value stocks. If rising inflation were to cause the interest rate move to be a sizable one, 
it would be difficult to believe that value as a whole would not outperform quite strongly. None of these events strike us as implausible, although we think the likelihood of an eventual normalization of the economy is close to certain, whereas rising inflation rates are merely a possibility. But our belief in value from here is not driven by a belief in any of these potential catalysts per se. That is partially because we don't think we are particularly good macroeconomic forecasters, but mostly because even in hindsight, the catalysts for market turns are often obscure. The cause of the 1929 and 1987 market crashes, the downfall of the Japanese equity market in 1989, and the bursting of the tech, media, and telecom bubble of 2000 aren't particularly obvious even decades after they occurred. And even if you knew what the economic catalyst for the turn was going to be, determining when you would want to take the leap into value would be far from clear. At times, the market looks ahead to the future state of the economy. At other times, it doesn't even seem to pay much attention to what is going on in the present, let alone the future. Future financial historians may indeed declare that the release of the vaccine trial data in November 2020 marked the start of the great value rally of the 2020s. On the other hand, they may not. We are far more confident that something will cause the turn than any one thing in particular will. Given the extreme level of the opportunity and value today, we consider that the risk of staying on the sideline until the turn is obvious is a bigger risk than entering into the trade before we are 100% sure the bottom is in. It has truly been a hellish time for value. After years of disappointing investors, value just experienced its worst 12-month performance in history. The long history of value as a style shows that its best times are more or less always preceded by pain. As value investors who have been suffering for it, for over a decade, we can certainly attest that we have experienced enough pain to justify a wonderful run for value stocks. But you don't have to simply take it on faith that value is well set up for the better times ahead. The relative valuations of these stocks around the world are some of the cheapest we have ever seen, and the decomposition of the sources of value's return since it peaked in 2006 shows that if valuations were to merely be stable at today's levels and the underlying fundamentals for value and growth were the same as they have been over the last 14 years, value would beat the market by a decent margin. Of course, we believe relative valuations will not merely be stable from here, but will rise back toward their historical normal levels. Whether that rise is driven by absolute gains for value stocks in the next few years or avoidance of losses from the bursting of the growth bubble, is hard to say. Over the next five to 10 years, most value stocks around the world seem to us to be priced to give a decent real return. Although that is more questionable for US large cap value stocks where absolute valuations are higher. For our part, we believe that the combination of a wonderful relative opportunity for value and worrying absolute valuations for stock markets suggests that now is the right time to exploit this value opportunity in a long, short framework. And that is the topic of how to profit from a growth bubble, a primer on our equity dislocation product. This audio paper is for professional investors only. I'll be reading a summary of the paper When Equity Factors Drop Their Shorts by David Blitz, Guido Baltusen, and Pim van Fleet, published in the Financial Analyst Journal in 2020. 
The authors work for Rubico, a pure play asset manager headquartered in Rotterdam, the Netherlands. Rubico has been a global leader in sustainable investing since 1995 and integrates sustainability in its quantitative and fundamental research to offer institutional and private investors an extensive selection of active investment strategies. David is chief quant researcher, Guido is co-head of quant fixed income and Pim is co-head of quant equities. To find out more about Rubico and the authors, visit rubico.com or find us on social media. Long-short factor portfolios are typically constructed on the assumption that the two legs are complementary drivers of factor premiums. In our research paper, we critically assess this notion by breaking down the farmer French-style portfolios, namely low-risk, momentum, value, profitability and investment, into their long and short legs. In our study, we examined the long and short sides of farmer French factor portfolios and found that the added value of common factors is generally concentrated in the long legs. There's abundant evidence for the existence of factor premiums in the equity market, such as value, momentum and low risk. Standard academic factor portfolios take hypothetical long positions in stocks with attractive characteristics and then combine them with short positions in stocks with unattractive characteristics. Therefore, factor premiums can be disentangled into a long-leg premium and a short-leg premium. So, the long-short approach assumes that both legs contain information that's relevant for investor portfolios and for understanding asset prices. But the legs may be subject to different dynamics and asset pricing implications. Numerous academic papers contend that short-selling faces constraints – which implies that mispricing on the side of overvaluation is considerably harder to correct than mispricing on the side of undervaluation. Researchers have argued that factor premiums increase with limits to arbitrage, which are arguably more binding on the short side. Consequently, one might expect factor premiums to be stronger on the short side. But in practice, shorting individual stocks is not frictionless. One reason for this is that short positions involve additional costs, particularly borrowing fees. Another consideration is, as one study found, that short positions are significantly less liquid than long positions. And then there's the fact that investors face various implementation hurdles. Many stocks can be sold short only to a limited extent, while some can't be shorted at all, and existing short positions may be recalled unexpectedly. What's more, the stocks that are designated for shorting are typically stocks that are harder and more expensive to short. As an example to illustrate the point, researchers demonstrated that shorting fees are more than three times higher than normal for the short leg of value, momentum, volatility-related and profitability portfolios. In fact, they argue that anomalies disappear for stocks with low lending fees. Short selling also entails additional risks, such as the potential for unlimited losses, short squeeze scenarios in which investors are unable to close their short positions, counterparty risk and reputational risk because the media can take a critical stance towards short sellers. Finally, there may be legal impediments to short selling. For instance, many countries have either a partial or a full ban on short selling. In light of these considerations, we argue that examining the long and short dimensions of factor premiums separately is important for a proper understanding of factor premiums and how to build efficient factor portfolios. 
The issues involved with shorting individual stocks can be solved effectively by hedging the market beta of a long-only factor portfolio with liquid derivatives on broad market indices. With this approach, one can capture the performance of the long legs of factor premiums. The performance of the short legs can be isolated in a similar fashion, that is, by considering the short portfolio in combination with an offsetting long position in broad market indices that brings the market beta to zero. By breaking down commonly studied equity factor premiums over the period 1963 to 2018, we found that the long minus short market approach has offered more value than the full-fledged long-short approach. This applies for individual factors and even more so for a multi-factor combination. Factors can be harvested in both long legs and short legs with positive premiums. However, sharp ratios have been highest for the long legs of factors and lowest for the short legs. We found that a key driver of the higher risk-adjusted returns for long legs is that individual factors have close to zero correlation on their long sides while being positively correlated on their short sides. In terms of findings, we saw that the individual sharp ratios of the long legs of the five factors based on the standard Pharma French methodology range from 0.31 to 0.61. But for an equally weighted portfolio of the five long legs, the sharp ratio increased to 1.10 because of diversification. And as was the case for the long legs, factor premiums for the short legs were also positive. Furthermore, the size of the factor returns was similar for both the long and short legs. That said, we found that the short legs exhibited higher volatility than the long legs, causing three of the five factors, namely value, momentum and investment, to have a lower sharp ratio on the short side than on the long side. The short leg of the momentum factor reflected particularly high volatility, consistent with the findings from multiple researchers that momentum crashes stem from the short legs. For profitability and low risk, their short sides appear to be a little stronger. When all five factors were combined, the long side had a sharp ratio of 1.10 versus only 0.69 for the short side. Consequently, long legs offer better diversification across factors. Further tests revealed that short legs typically have zero or negative alpha after controlling for the long legs. In contrast, long legs generally have a significantly positive alpha that cannot be explained by the short legs. Spanning and optimization tests showed that short legs typically do not improve portfolios containing long legs. In other words, the dominant part of factor premiums is generally on the long side, and the short legs of factor premiums are subsumed by their long leg counterparts. We also examined the role of size because limits to arbitrage are generally higher in small caps. Many studies have shown that factor premiums tend to be larger in the small cap space than in the large cap arena. We found that the long side of factor strategies exhibited stronger performance and subsumed the short legs both in large caps and small caps. Moreover, starting from the long side of factors in the large cap space, a bigger gain can be obtained by adding the long side in the small cap space than by adding the short side in the large cap space. Similarly, 
Portfolio tests revealed that short legs are of limited value to most investors, whereas long legs in small caps add significant value. We found our results to be robust and consistent over time as to size considerations and in relation to a range of methodological choices. We also saw similar results internationally for various regions around the world and for global versions of the factor strategies. Furthermore, the results could not be explained by tail risk. Our breakdown of factor strategies into their long and short legs also yielded new insights into the low risk and value premiums. The low-risk premium derives from the finding that low-risk stocks earn high-risk-adjusted returns, whereas high-risk stocks earn low-risk-adjusted returns. The result is a significant alpha for low-risk stocks that's not explained by classic factors such as market, size, value and momentum. However, it's been argued that the low-risk premium is subsumed by the profitability and investment factors, according to Pharma and French. And early findings for the value factor premium have also come under attack as Farm and French showed that their classic value factor, based on book-to-market ratios, is rendered redundant by the new investment and profitability factors. By breaking down factor portfolios into their long and short legs, we found that the conclusions from these papers regarding the low risk and value factors are entirely driven by the short sides of these strategies. The short sides of low risk and value are indeed subsumed by the other factors, in particular, low profitability and high investment. In other words, the poor performance of high risk and growth stocks can be explained by their resemblance to so-called junk. The performance of the long sides of low risk and value strategies cannot be explained, however, by the long sides of other factors, including high profitability and low investment. This asymmetrical result implies that low risk and value are distinct factors on the long side and that the long-short results for these factors are dominated by their different behavior on the short side. For factor-based investors, our results indicate that because the short legs of pharma-French-style portfolios provide no unique alpha – An efficient approach to factor investing is simply to concentrate on the long legs and hedge out the market beta with liquid market index derivatives. But we need to mention a couple of caveats here. First, investing in just the long legs gives only about half the raw return, so double the amount of gross leverage is needed to attain the original return level. Second, the impact of costs should be accounted for. Considering all relevant costs, though, we believe it's unlikely that our conclusions would change fundamentally. Most important in this regard are the magnitude of shorting costs and the feasibility of shorting. The conclusion from our analysis should not necessarily be overgeneralized to include the notion that shorting does not add value in general. Our analysis is limited to the long and short legs of five widely used academic factor premiums with portfolios constructed via standard sorting procedures. Although the factors in our study are widely considered to be among the most important drivers of stock returns, we acknowledge that hundreds of alternative factors have been documented and that some of them may obtain most of their performance from the short side. Also, we have not examined portfolios optimized at the level of individual stocks, while accounting for various factor or risk-based constraints. Hi, this is Vinir Bansali, Chief Investment Officer of Longtail Alpha LLC, a Newport Beach, California-based firm 
we specialized in risk mitigation strategies, including tail risk hedging and trend following and various other methods that we use for managing portfolio risk, both on the left side and the right side. I've written a number of books on the topic, and today I will discuss our paper, Diversifying Diversification, Downside Risk Management with a Portfolio of Insurance Securities. This paper was published in the Journal of Portfolio Management, and it was Jeremy Holdem, who was a research strategist here at Longtail Alpha, and myself. Our key findings are the following, that many securities and strategies such as gold, Swiss franc, bond futures, S&P 500, index put options, trend following, they all work for risk mitigation, and different people emphasize the importance of different strategies and securities. Some people argue for trend following being the best strategy. Some people argue for left-tail hedging being the best strategy. We take a very democratic approach, and our approach is that Perhaps all of these tools in the trade should be used for managing risk without necessarily preferring one over another at all times. Of course, pricing does matter and pricing makes a difference when things are cheap, when insurance is cheap in one asset class or one type of strategy or security, it should be used. So what we did here is we set up these different instruments and went back and tested it over a 50-year history. First, we verified that each one of these strategies mitigates risk. And then what we did is we also ran a optimization strategy with the portfolio of these securities and an equal weighted portfolio where we didn't do any optimization. And what we found is that even without doing a lot of optimization, being democratic and open-minded about these securities and strategies actually allows portfolio posture quite a bit. We call it diversifying diversification. So instead of arguing about what strategy is the best one to use, we should think of diversifying all of our diversification strategies. Now, that's even more important when it's impossible to forecast the future, which it almost always is, but today even more than ever. Instead of focusing on one insurance or risk mitigation strategy, we believe all of them should be used without a lot of reliance on hindsight bias or picking one that shows up as really good in backtesting but doesn't necessarily work you know, out of sample. Now, just to give you an overview of the paper, stock markets are very high and they've been rallying for quite a bit and investors are quite worried about a sharp pullback. So they're looking for diversification. Today, fixed income doesn't do very well because interest rates are quite low. In many countries, rates have to go negative for diversification. Duration has been in a backtest, a very good risk mitigation strategy. It's just that looking at the environment in the next few years where inflation could become a real problem, it may or may not be the best type of strategy used for diversification. So collectively, we call these securities insurance securities, and we do the risk mitigation problem in two steps, basically repeating two steps in a systematic manner. First, we look at each insurance security by itself and see what its risk-return profile is in isolation. And there's a table in the paper that describes all the statistics over the last 50 years, including return, volatility, drawdown, et cetera. And then we do it in the portfolio context, where we don't just look at each individual security, but we collect them inside of a portfolio and do the analytical exercise, both optimized and non-optimized, on the convexity that this portfolio delivers. The paper is very simple in the sense that we haven't relied on a lot of fancy 
techniques, overfitting, machine learning, all of those things, because we want to really communicate the ideas at a very, very basic level. And we haven't used other things like complex utility functions, negative skewed utility functions, so on, because the results can be made to look as good as one wants if you complicate the problem. And, and the purpose here is not to complicate, but to actually simplify. So our insurance security universe consists of S&P 500 as the underlying instrument. And as mentioned before, the Swiss franc, Japanese yen, gold, U.S. long bond futures, a simple trend program, and a left tail S&P 500 put option strategy. The data starts in the early 1970s, so we've got about 50 years of data. Now, each one of these strategies has a rationale on why it might be useful. The put option is simply an option, so that's clear. It just protects against downside. Swiss franc and yen typically perform well or have historically performed well when there's a flight out of carry trades because those are low-yielding currencies considered to be safe havens. The Swiss franc still is probably the yen isn't anymore. Gold, again, in today's vernacular, Bitcoin might be called digital gold, but gold and other instruments like that are a place where people have gone traditionally, historically, for many, many thousands of years to keep their money safe. And then duration, as I mentioned before, benefits from diversification response when the stock market is falling. So each one of them has a rationale, but each one of them also contributes depending on levels and the kind of episode that people are insuring against. The trend following aspect of this, slightly different from all the others, trend following is a strategy that has a long history, essentially momentum across asset classes, which is in a sense option replication, but also it goes philosophically to the very important aspect of markets, that markets don't always mean revert, that they can trend, especially and when they're trending, the bounds of mean reversion can break down and markets can directionally move quite a bit. Option volatilities in our paper are all derived from the implied volatility surface. From 1996 onwards, we actually have the volatility surface. Prior to that, we have backfilled it using a structural model, which is relatively close to how these options would behave. Further details, obviously, are in the paper. In Exhibit 1 and 2, we describe both the realized returns as well as the convexity profile. And then we do some polynomial fits. And one of the most important things to us that comes out of this paper is that the more reliable a security and insurance security is, for example, a put option, typically the more upfront cost you have to pay. That's very simple. And you can understand that in order to be reliable, for instance, buying home insurance or fire insurance, you want to be provided with that insurance from someone who can be relied upon in that event. And put options in the S&P 500 index are probably the most reliable way of hedging downside risk on the S&P 500 index because it doesn't suffer from the basis risk that might come from diversification, et cetera. And correspondingly, because it's so reliable, it costs a little bit more. So the trade-off is not to go back and say, let's look at what was the cheapest way of insuring. But it's more about, given my desire for reliability, what is the best way of insuring? If I want things to be less reliable but cheaper, of course, I can go and buy something else that's cheaper. So one of the aspects of this is that just looking at sharp ratios in isolation for these insurance securities might not be a very good 
indicator. You have to look at cash flows. You have to look at when they pay off. Are they reliable? Is the convexity there when you need it or not? And obviously, there's a price for that convexity, both the size, the magnitude, and the reliability of that convexity. So moving on in the paper, we do two types of portfolio construction, both in-sample and out-sample to prevent data mining bias. In the very simple case, we just look at a weighted average of all these insurance securities, and that that works really well, actually, both out-of-sample and in-sample. And then we also do it with an optimization scheme where we basically risk adjust to make it risk equal. And there are certain episodes in which it does better than the naive Occam's razor equal weighting. But generally speaking, the results to us are fairly close. Again, I won't go into all the details, but the details are described in the paper that Jeremy and I wrote that I mentioned before. And then finally, just to conclude this paper, the results are quite robust, both in sample, out of sample, the weights are quite stable, and we just believe that the upshot of this approach is that people should take the risk mitigation and diversification problem in a very simple and straightforward manner, which is what are all the tools that are available in the marketplace? How can I combine them? And does the combination give me a lot of faith in the reliability and the delivery potential of these different types of hedges? So thank you for listening and hope you enjoy the paper and we'd love any feedback on it. Thank you. Hi, this is Larry Siegel and this is Debunking Nine and a Half Myths of Investing. This talk was prepared for Ted Aronson and his firm AJO Vista and has been revised for the current situation. How did I become a myth buster? A quick look at my website reveals that I've written at least six articles with the word myth in the title, not counting earlier versions of this article. I guess the answer is that I'm amused by human folly and for some odd reason feel the need to correct shoddy thinking. But I also think that it's an easy way to help people to get them to stop acting against their own interest, something everyone does from time to time. A brief commercial... I also worked the word folly into the title of my latest book, Unknown Knowns, on economics, investing, progress, and folly. Please buy it. Just type Unknown Knowns Folly into Amazon. That will distinguish it from all other books that have the words unknown and knowns in the title. Thank you very much. Let's get started. Myth number one. I'm going to use the words quote and close quote to bracket the myths, so that you don't think this is what I believe, but so that you understand that I think it is a myth. Quote, there is so much indexing that the market must be getting more inefficient because there is not enough money managed by people who analyze securities. Close quote. My response, fat chance. About half the assets in the U.S. equity market are actively managed. That represents trillions of dollars overseen by analysts who diligently try to beat the market. While their success ratio is not great, they do engage in price discovery, enabling index funds to free ride on their efforts. And corporations can price their own securities, as Rex Sinkfield, one of the founders of DFA, pointed out decades ago. They issue stock when they think the price is high and buy stock back when they think it's low. This activity is a major contributor to price discovery. At any rate, if 
the market were becoming deliciously inefficient, in Jeremy Grantham's memorable phrase, we'd see it in the alphas. We don't. Myth number two, quote, interest rates aren't rising, so the government can borrow all it wants, close quote. About a decade ago, Carmen Reinhart and Kenneth Rogoff came out with a masterly study showing that highly indebted nations get into trouble when their debt-to-GDP ratio exceeds 90%. They did not literally say that this was a tipping point beyond which recovery was impossible without an inflation that destroys the real value of the debt, but a reader could be forgiven for thinking that's what they meant. A little while later, a group of researchers found that Reinhardt and Rogoff had made a data error. Some people ridiculed Reinhardt and Rogoff's work for that reason and came to the astonishing conclusion that because R and R had been a little careless, debt doesn't matter. Borrow away. Well, debt does matter because you have to pay it back. Or if you're a government or a certain type of private borrower, you can just roll over the principal, but you have to pay the debt service interest, and possibly a portion of the principal over time. We don't know where the tipping point is, and it may be different for each country and in each time period, but at some point you can't pay the interest, much less the principal. In other words, if we don't have debt problems now, at some level of indebtedness we will. More than 200 years ago, David Ricardo noted that there are only three ways the government can raise revenue. One, current taxation, which I call taxing the present. Two, borrowing, which necessitates future taxation, so it's taxing the future. And three, inflating away the real value of existing assets, which is taxing the past, because that's when the income used to purchase the assets was earned. Nothing has changed since Ricardo to make his observation any less valid. So we will either get higher taxes now much higher taxes in the future, or inflation. Which one do you think it'll be? In a forthcoming article, Wiley Tillett and Jeed Potkameter of Franklin Templeton and I wrote, Inflation is a ninja. A shock to global growth will flatten you, but you will see it coming. But inflation will kill you in stealth. It can creep up on you year after year. While inflation does not seem like a threat to portfolio values at this time, that is when investors should be most vigilant. Beware the ninja. We wrote these words in 2019, but they're much more relevant now, and not because inflation over the past year was 5%. We can live with 5% for a while. I also don't mind that wages are up. That's a good thing. But my beach house rent has doubled since 2019, Unfortunately, I'm the tenant, not the landlord. Gasoline is up 50% over that period, and car rental prices are up 70%. The restaurant meal I ate tonight is up 20% from last year. Different people have different consumption baskets, so inflation is personal. In my case, and that of a lot of people that I know, inflation is much more than 5%. Beware the ninja. Myth number three, quote, we are in a new era of breakneck technological change where growth outperforms value permanently, or at least as far out as the eye can see, close quote. Well, this is already a little out of date. The S&P 500 value benchmark narrowly outperformed the growth benchmark over the 12 months ended October 31st, 2021. 
But on a cumulative basis, growth has massively outperformed value in the last decade plus. In a 2019 white paper, Charles Dalziel and Graham Shaw of Orbis, an investment firm in Australia, argue that value and growth follow cycles that are more or less predictable from valuation levels, not from the duration of the cycle, and that the cycle has not been repealed. Thus, they believe we are on the verge of a period of substantial outperformance for value. Let me first quote their conclusion, then I will comment on it. They write, value has a long history of outperforming growth, and while the opposite has happened starting around 2006, investors should require a strong argument before accepting the unusual performance of growth as a permanent fixture. Falling interest rates and unusually rapid technological development are often cited as reasons for a paradigm shift to a world where growth stocks will permanently outperform value shares. But when you look at the data, you find that technology has not achieved a growth rate faster than what was achieved historically, and that historical return differences between value and growth have not been sensitive to large changes in interest rates either. Now, while as a value-oriented investor, I'd like to believe this literally, it's just a little too cute for me. Fundamentals, not mathematical relationships, are what drive stock prices. I think that when there's a technological revolution, growth does indeed win. And when there is less of a technological revolution, or none at all, value wins. So value wins more often than, than growth does. But when growth does win, it wins big, as we've seen very recently. This idea is just a conjecture, and it needs some research to support it, so I'm planning to investigate it further. I have not yet done so. We saw growthy markets in the 1920s when automobiles, radio, and electrical appliances were the technological frontier. In the 1960s, with the Onyx boom, I almost said sonic boom, when any company with a name suggesting a connection to electronics went up massively. And as all of us here remember in the late 1990s with dot-coms, then we saw it again in the last decade. Tech revolutions almost have to favor growth because the huge tech companies that dominate the market after a tech revolution were small before the tech revolution. But big valuation disparities such as are produced by these revolutions can't last forever, so value will have its turn sooner or later, and when the turn does come, it is likely to be big as it was on many occasions in the past. You do not have to look back all that far to see a big gain in the value benchmark relative to growth. We experienced that in the few years right after the year 2000. Myth number four, quote, we are in a new bipolar world of U.S. and Chinese dominance where those two economies are the only ones anyone should care about. Since it's hard to invest in China, a very large weight in the U.S. is a good idea, close quote. I'll start by admitting that the non-U.S. markets, both developed and emerging, have been absolutely hammered relative to the U.S. over the last 10 years. Now, let's look under the hood. The U.S. had an equity market capitalization of $48 trillion as of late 2021, and China between $4 and $5 trillion, according to MSCI. The World Bank gives a much higher number, $12 trillion for China, 
because it includes Hong Kong and maybe Taiwan as, as part of China. The next 20 markets, which I can't list here for time reasons, total $42 trillion, about the same as the United States. Japan's market cap is bigger than China's. The UK is about $3.5 trillion, and there are seven more countries with market caps over $2 trillion. Don't you think there are some stocks in those 20 countries that somebody would want? And let's not forget the fastest-growing economies in the world. According to Nasdaq.com, they are Guyana, Ethiopia, Rwanda, Bangladesh, and India. It might be hard to get stocks in the first three, but that won't always be the case, and Bangladesh is already in the MSCI Frontier Index. There are a number of frontier market funds for those who are interested. India is a well-established emerging market, and the case for investing there is well-known. And then there's booming Vietnam. There are many enticing investment opportunities in the world, and the farther afield you go from the mainstream, the more likely you are to find overlooked companies. In the unlikely event that you have no views on any of these countries or companies, the efficient or Markowitz optimal equity portfolio is the cap-weighted all-country portfolio of world equities, and unsurprisingly, there is an index fund for this too. Myth number five, quote, big data and AIML, artificial intelligence and machine learning, are the next big thing in active management, close quote. Brian Kelly, formerly a professor at the University of Chicago and Yale, and now with the investment management firm AQR, correctly points out that machine learning, sometimes mislabeled artificial intelligence, is just applied statistics. It is what you learned when you read Thomas Bayes, who lived from 1702 to 1761, and Carl Friedrich Gauss, who lived from 1777 to 1855, in your advanced statistics class in business school or an economics department. But statistical inference feels different and works differently when you apply it to really large amounts of data with really fast and cheap computers, hence the new terminology and media hoopla. What is new, in other words, is the speed of the computers, the sophistication of the programmers, and the unprecedented abundance of data not the basic thinking behind the methods. The thinking is two and three centuries old. Big data and AIML are a really big deal if you're a credit card company using applied statistics and endless computing power to mine the 369 billion transactions last year on a planet with fewer than 8 billion people for information about consumers. But if you are a humble stock picker mining the monthly returns on 5,000 stocks, or worse, an asset allocator with returns across fewer than 100 significant stock, bond, and currency markets, your data set is tiny by big data standards and will produce, at best, small incremental gains relative to what you can accomplish using traditional analysis. This is not to say that Professor Kelly is against machine learning. He's a major advocate of it. He just wants you to know the limitations and be able to cut through the hype. Myth number six, quote, central bankers can get us out of any kind of scrape we get ourselves into. A flood of money into the economy is the pill that cures all ills, close quote. When you're a fireman, you benefit from an abundance of fires. When you're a central banker, 
which is a boring job except in economic emergencies, you benefit from emergencies. If you are always running to the rescue and perceived as successful, you become a rock star, asked for advice by kings and presidents, invited to the best parties, and feted in Michelin three-star restaurants. Now, real emergencies do happen, as we found out the hard way recently, but having economic firemen in charge does not make for good long-term policy. Looking at the fiscal rather than the monetary side, John Maynard Keynes said that governments should engage in deficit spending during downturns and build up a surplus or reserve during periods of growth, which is to say most of the time. However, today's so-called Keynesians think that it's always an emergency, so they are always trying to stimulate. On the monetary side, we have something similar. The cure for every real or imagined threat to economic growth is lower interest rates and easy money. You could call this view of the world a crisis crisis. Everything that happens is a justification for expensive intervention. This benefits, you guessed it, the interveners. The first central bank intervention during the 2007-2008 meltdown was right and necessary. The continuing policy of quantitative easing was not. There is no evidence that it did any good. The recovery was slower than normal. Yet unwinding the policy has the potential to do substantial harm. Central bankers should stop trying to be rock stars and should manage the money supply to a steady and predictable rate of growth. With COVID, again, the early interventions were right and necessary, but we do not have an exit strategy and too much stimulus will again do substantial harm. I've already talked about the inflation we're currently experiencing. It could get worse with parlous consequences for government, business, and consumer finances if interest rates rise sharply, which they could. This has happened before. Stop it already. Myth number seven. Quote, the endowment model is still broken, close quote, and it's still a myth. Most endowments are doing fine, not walking above us or crashing in illiquid investments. Their performance has been workmanlike, just normal for what they set out to do. Endowment returns should not be compared to the S&P 500, which bears no resemblance to any benchmark that a perpetual endowment should have but to the world market wealth portfolio of equities and bonds, or more cogently to their goal of earning enough to meet payout requirements and still remain whole in real terms. I am writing a paper with Barton Waring on endowment and foundation spending, so look for that sometime in the future. The Nobel Prize winning economist James Tobin said that, quote, the trustees of endowed institutions are the guardians of the future against the claims of the present, close quote. As such, they should pursue conservatory strategies, not maximally aggressive ones, and should be judged against the Tobin criterion. Thus, the correct statement that endowed institutions as a class have underperformed during the 2009 to 2021 bull market is misleading. They have, by and large, done what they were supposed to do. Note that the world equity market delivered much lower returns than the U.S. market. Moreover, long-term bonds far outperformed any conceivable expectation so that endowments would have been irresponsible in taking the risk of holding long-term bonds, even though those bonds worked out well in hindsight. Liquidity matters. 
As numerous market sages have said, liquidity is a coward. It runs at the first sign of trouble. Harvard and the University of Chicago painfully relearned this lesson in 2008 and 2009. But endowed institutions have developed technologies, mostly consisting of an Excel spreadsheet, for managing liquidity requirements in the face of significant allocations to illiquid assets. One large endowment, the Helmsley Trust, is led by Raz Husinian, who spoke at the Foundation Financial Officers Group in San Francisco in May 2019. She said, tongue firmly in cheek for the first part, and I quote, We classify assets into four liquidity categories. Now, get ready. This took a lot of thinking. Safe, liquid, semi-liquid, illiquid. We define them literally in terms of how quickly we can get the money, regardless of whether that liquidity impairment is caused by the underlying illiquidity of the investment or by legal encumbrances such as gates and notification periods that affect how quickly you get your money back. That's the end of her quote. She went on to describe each category, then concluded that, quote, by defining risk in terms of liquidity, all the levers within an asset category were open to us, close quote. They did not have to limit exposure to illiquid assets out of fear. They were able to manage the process and achieve the desired balance between liquidity and other investment characteristics, such as expected return. Myth number eight. Quote, the global economy can add 4 billion plus people to the middle class and at the same time stop using carbon-based energy to support the quality of life as we know it. Close quote. In the rich West, we may be using too much energy or we may not be, but an awfully large number of people in the rest of the world use way too little. Mercy Najima, a Kenyan doctoral student, explains, quote, Consider the women and children who spend hours every day searching for energy resources. Once they start burning biomass, for example wood, indoors with no ventilation, the acrid smoke causes serious lung disease. More people die from smoke inhalation than from malaria. And because children have to help collect fuel during school hours, time spent on their education is severely reduced. That's the end of the Mercy Najima quote. And you want to take energy away from these people? As Václav Smil, probably the world's leading energy expert, points out, energy transitions, wood to coal, coal to oil, and so forth, take a long time because of the size of the installed base and the capital required to create a new energy infrastructure. 60 years is a typical transition time, but if we have a head start, as we do with nuclear power, because much of the technology already exists, we may be able to speed that up some. But in the meantime, developing countries will use more carbon, not less. Developed countries have already started to cut their carbon usage, with energy efficiency improving at about 1.5% per year globally. That rate compounds up pretty quickly, adding to a very substantial energy savings over time. The alternative, a carbon sudden stop, would condemn the 4 billion to eternal poverty and ourselves to something similar but not quite as bad. Energy is the master resource. Carbon stores an awful lot of it very efficiently, and renewables such as solar and wind power are attenuated, 
pose serious storage problems and use a lot of carbon in mining and transporting the needed materials? There's no easy answer. While we should most certainly try to mitigate carbon emissions, we should also devote resources to climate adaptation. And we shouldn't punish the world's poorest people for wanting to live a little more like we do. Myth number nine, quote, we will be in a low return environment in the near future, close quote. Not a myth, but reality based on the numbers. It depends, of course, on what you mean by the near future. Truly short-term forecasts are worthless, but we can make generalizations about the next five or 10 years. The 10-year real treasury bond, or TIPS yield, tells you exactly what market participants collectively expect the real risk return to be over the next 10 years, minus 1% per year. Now that's a low return environment. It reminds me of Will Rogers' wisecrack that, quote, I am not so much concerned with the return on capital as I am with the return of capital, unquote. He was joking, but what he said is no longer funny. In riskless bonds, you will not even get all your capital back in real terms, much less a bonus for foregoing current consumption. In the equity markets, the expected real total return, including dividends, is given roughly by the earnings yield, that is, one divided by the P.E. This number is currently 3.7%. Not too bad in a negative 1% real interest rate environment, that's an equity risk premium of 4.7%, but much much lower than the historical average return on equities. Now I proceed to myth number nine and a half, which is the longer term version of myth number nine, which turned out to be not a myth. Quote, we will be in a low return environment for the indefinite future, close quote. This is completely wrong and totally a myth. My first book, Fewer, Richer, Greener, shows that over the last 200 years, U.S. GDP per capita has mushroomed from around $3,000 in today's money to about $68,000. Another brief commercial. Please buy this book by typing fewer, richer, greener into Amazon. Thank you. Global GDP per capita has grown over a somewhat shorter period because the global data start later from a little over $1,000 per person to about 18000 Remarkably, the world average, about $18,000 per person per year, is now approximately what the U.S. average was in 1949, when the U.S. was incontestably a first-world country. I'll say that again. The average person in the world lives at about the standard of the average American in 1949 when your grandfather was already a grown man. Can you think of any reason why this growth should suddenly stop or slow dramatically? We hear frequently that we're facing the end of the world, or at least of economic growth or productivity growth, but the world doesn't care. It keeps growing at about the same rate as it was before. While there are fluctuations in the growth rate across time and place, for example, the center of gravity of growth has shifted from Europe to the United States to now Asia, the overall trend should continue along the path that it has followed in the past because people keep innovating in an effort to do more with less. And innovation is what causes incomes and thus corporate profits and stock prices, which follow incomes pretty closely in the very long run, to rise. 
Betting against human ingenuity and the desire to better one's condition is a fool's game. The democratization of wealth in the last half century, with some of the world's poorest countries emerging as big success stories, Bangladesh and Vietnam come to mind, has been amazing. Africa has started along this path too, mostly just in this new century. It is the first big break the world's poor have ever gotten, and I don't think it will stop. You certainly don't want it to. This broadening of the culture of prosperity will take a lot of capital and will reward risk-takers on average over the long run. Investors should look beyond the United States for opportunity in the rest of this century. But don't write off the United States either. In the U.S., where we have a deep store of human and physical capital, as well as the long-established rule of law and protection for property, we look to several ways of bringing about a sustained jump in productivity and labor force growth, with its associated gains in GDP, sales, and profits. These include a much-needed fix to our immigration policies, a better balance on regulation, and exploiting the new technologies of genomic engineering, eco-engineering, and AIML, even if the last is really just applied statistics. The future will be fascinating and much more prosperous than today. As investors, let's think creatively about profiting from it. Thank you for your time. Hello, this is Dan Rasmussen. I'm the founding partner of Verdad Advisors. Verdad is an investment management firm. We manage about $500 million across small cap value, high yield bonds, and tactical asset allocation. To learn more about us, you can check out our website at www.verdadcap.com. You can find me on Twitter at, at VerdadCap. And please sign up for our weekly mailing, uh, weekly email research, uh, which comes out every Monday and which you can find in my Twitter bio. I'm going to read a piece titled Crisis Investing, which we published in January of 2020, right before the great COVID crash. We are 10 years into one of the longest bull markets in history. But what if the market turns? What if greed turns to fear, optimism to pessimism? This concern, amplified by the salient pain of the 2008 global financial crisis, has led many investors to set aside portions of their portfolio in cash, bonds, and gold. They imagine that in another March 2009 or February 2016 or December 2018, they'll have the fortitude to buy the dip, deploying their sleep-at-night money into risk assets at the bottom. But if history is any indicator, those skittish during the great bull market will be panic-stricken when volatility hits. Fund flows into risk assets are, after all, pro-cyclical, rising in good times, falling in bad times. In the fog of war, most people's decision-making abilities are impaired, not heightened. It didn't work in prior crises. We have spent the past year studying every financial crisis in the U.S. since 1970. We have done this work for your benefit, so that you will keep your head when all about you are losing theirs. When weak hands fold, when forced sellers liquidate, we hope this research will help you make good decisions. To develop this in-depth analysis of market panics, we looked at every major asset class, every sector, and every quantitative factor. We looked at index-level data, and then we built a database of security-level data. We read through the newspapers during each panic to understand what investors most feared, and we distilled the lessons from this massive study into the report you are now listening to. A variation of an ancient Roman proverb says, Fortuna eruditus favit. 
Fortune favors the prepared mind. Tolstoy wrote in Anna Karenina, Happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Markets are the opposite. Bull markets are all bullish in their own ways. The leaders in one expansion are almost never the leaders in the next. In the 2000, companies with exposure to emerging markets and commodities were the biggest winners. In the 2010s, the FANG stocks and other tech companies drove the market expansion. It's hard to predict what investors will fall in love with in a bull market. But crises are alike. A recent academic study found that standard models for predicting returns in equity markets are 8x as predictive during recessions as during expansions. Take, for example, the classic factors that Nobel Prize winner Eugene Fama and his researcher uh, partner Ken French developed, size, value, and investment. The smallest decile stocks, the cheapest decile stocks, and the most conservative capital deployment decile stocks perform much better during crises and with much higher consistency than at any other times. In fact, crisis periods account for most of the excess returns attributable to each factor over the entire duration of our observed period from 1953 to 2019. The higher returns to quantitative investing accrue from the abnormally bad behavior of humans. During bad economic times, investors and lenders panic. Consider these quotes drawn from newspapers during previous crises. The main excesses of the past few years have scarcely begun to be liquidated, said one investment advisor in 1969. We're talking about a possible economic wipeout, said Tim Richardson in 1986. They're selling the good with the bad because they can. They're throwing everything out the window, said another in 2000. This market sentiment has real-world impact. When investors and lenders panic, they reduce new lending and new investment as they attempt to de-risk their balance sheets. In a famous paper, Ben Bernanke labeled this the financial accelerator. Economic shocks cause investors and lenders to panic and stop new lending and investing. Firms that rely on external financing reduce their discretionary spending and weaker firms go bankrupt, all of which reflexively feeds back into aggregate economic activity. We can see this pattern recurring in the historical data. Default rates and borrowing costs for high-yield issuers track a GDP-based recession indicator. During recessions, the high-yield spread spikes upward, default rates soar. This stress rewards companies that are profitable and cash-generative, while weak firms and companies that are investing heavily in burning cash struggle and often go bankrupt. Simple, logical, quantitative factors are significantly more predictive during these times of economic crisis than they are during expansions. Crises are high-stress environments where basic tests of solvency and profitability become seminally important in dictating a company's survival and economic future. Companies like Tesla or WeWork may thrive during expansions when money is cheap, but such excesses do not long survive in times of market turmoil. Investors who can keep their heads when everyone about them is losing theirs can therefore exploit simple predictable rules to make significantly outsized returns and have the confidence that the probability of achieving these higher returns is much higher in times of crisis than otherwise. The only problem is the extreme behavioral difficulty of investing when others are panicking. So for each crisis, we read through the newspapers at the time of the crisis and studied the key quotes from that research to help provide insight into just how stressed investors were and the levels of fear one would need to overcome to profit. Today, I will lay out the information you need to make decisions when crisis strikes. We first looked at how different asset classes perform when high-yield spreads are above and below 6.5% to get a sense for how they perform during tranquil times and terms of panic. Small-value stocks outperform other asset classes when spreads are below 6.5%, but vastly outperform when spreads are at or above 6.5%. Not surprisingly, 
High-yield bonds perform in line with investment-grade bonds when spreads are low, but perform well when spreads are high. The U.S. market and investment-grade bonds perform roughly in line and before and after, and treasuries are the lowest-yielding asset class, both when high-yield spreads are low and high. Regardless, the best-performing asset class during these periods has historically been small-cap value by a country mile. What about alternative assets? Investors might plan to take advantage of the next crisis through private alternatives like private equity and distressed debt. In fact, many investors have private equity and distressed debt allocations uh, precisely to take advantage of these moments of panic. We consider both alternatives. Private equity. Unfortunately for investors in private equity, private equity firms essentially stop deploying capital when high-yield spreads rise above 6.5%, which is also the time when returns in private equity are the best. High-yield spreads had a negative 69% correlation with quarterly private equity deal volume from 2006 to 2018. When spreads are high, debt financing is hard to acquire and deal volume plummets. When markets are in freefall, most private equity investors will wait for things to settle before resuming deal flow instead of buying the most distressed assets at the optimal time. Investors with large PE allocations therefore find their capital flows are pro-cyclical. They invest the most money when debt is cheap and multiples are high, and the least money during times when the spread is wide and valuations are low. Even for the most prepared and disciplined investor, reacting in times to rising high-yield spreads would be extremely challenging. As we mentioned previously, equity returns are maximized in the two to three months after high-yield spreads hit 6.5. It would be near impossible for a private equity investor to deploy meaningful amounts of capital into multiple opportunities in two to three months while borrowing rates for debt are rising. In terms of returns, private equity vintage year returns are significantly higher in years when the high-yield spread is over 6.5%. The average IRR for a vintage year where spreads average above 6 is 17% versus 12% for a vintage year when spreads average below that. But if we compare vintage year returns and 12-month forward returns in the Cambridge Associates PE index to FABA French value or our multi-factor model, which we'll describe below, we see the performance is significantly worse. In summary, while private equity seems like it should be an ideal asset class to take advantage of these opportunities, higher borrowing costs, short windows of opportunities, and high degrees of uncertainty prevent private equity from acting. Distressed debt. Distressed debt would seemingly be the optimal asset class to take advantage of times of financial distress. Distressed funds will opportunistically invest in the debt, equity, or trade claims of companies in financial distress are already in default. Distressed funds can take advantage of these opportunities by buying stakes at considerable discount. Given this mandate, they should outperform during periods of uncertainty. However, the performance of distressed funds lag even the triple C index. The multi-factor equity model we discuss below outperforms distressed debt by four and a half times. In the most optimistic case, distressed funds may be outperforming the triple C index before fees, but the fact remains the returns lag far behind equities. Distressed investing underperforms multi-factor model because the multi-factor model is buying companies that are cheap and healthy, whereas the distressed debt funds are buying businesses that are in an unhealthy, precarious, high bankruptcy risk situation. With a lower default or bankruptcy rate than distressed fund portfolios, it should be no surprise that the multi-factor model performs. In summary, neither PE nor distressed debt funds are the right vehicles to take advantage of these opportunities. Given the significant outperformance of small value equities during these time periods, a dedicated public small value exposure is the optimal way to capitalize on these moments. However, deciding to allocate to public small value during these times is not enough. To ensure the capital is put to work during these events, funds should commit to having a dedicated allocation that is drawn down when high-yield spreads hit a certain threshold, similar to PE. This would suggest that even during the most trying times, investors have the discipline and structure in place to take advantage of these truly unique opportunities. 